Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. Well, I think it's all important, and I think it comes down to who fits you and what you can work with. And I think that's critical. I mean, and, and what your coaching staff can work with and what they think they can do with them, how they can build an offense around that player to make him work no matter who it is, no matter who the quarterback is. I mean, you're going to build an offense different for Peyton Manning that you're going to build for Michael Vick. I mean, it's just going to be different. So I think it comes down to who you believe um, you can build the offense around the best and, and win games with. Happy Tuesday, one and all. Welcome into the Fan Midday Show. I'm Will Haskett. He's Jimmy Cook. On the clock, the Indianapolis Colts on Thursday. We'll talk about that at some point coming up in the show today, I'm sure, because, well, what else do we have to talk about? We cannot wait until Thursday evening gets here, Jimmy, so we can get this behind us. It's not even May yet. And we're getting, we got flags going up all around us right now in the studio. It is a very busy place here down on Monument Circle today. Uh, the decorating crew is in here right now. Jimmy, it's all checkered flags, though. <laughs> you had an issue with that. You were looking I for do have an issue. a whole like, set. We to need break the out. full array of flags. <laughs> I want all the colors for life, for this show, for the ability to wave things off to call out bad takes, yeah. to get to commercial breaks on time. The most underappreciated flag of them all is the blue with the orange stripe, which is you're slow and move over. Someone's going to come flying up your rear end sometime soon. There's a, a million ways that could be used yeah. as a metaphor in life. So um, I think by tomorrow's show, maybe I can I can go out and I'll splurge. We'll figure out a way to get a, a full flag I, set. I'm, I'm sure even if you just go to Party City, you can probably find a mini set that's just personalized just for you. Month of May, good enough for... The camera. Got to go to Alabama first this week, and then IndyCar <laughs> will be racing here in the Circle City coming up. There's the array. We got it. Look at that. <laughs> on YouTube, Radio we got some of it. We got it, green. But... We got yellow in there. I'm just going to pick a couple of these off, and we're just going to wave them throughout the course of the show today. <laughs> so right now, it is green flag racing because we are ready to go. We are set. We are loaded with information. We are loaded with the bustle of this sports season. NBA games last night were electric, uh, more than electric. Last night was... Just absolutely phenomenal theater. I don't really know what, where to start, whether it's Jimmy Butler's franchise best 56 in a fourth quarter that was just magical. I mean, are the Bucks done, Jimmy? And then the same can be asked about the Grizzlies in that OT thriller in Los Angeles last night where LeBron James, who is as old as Michael Jordan was on the Wizards. <laughs> like, think about that for a second. I mean, this is not like, oh, yeah, it's still LeBron. Like, this is you know, MJ Wizards last two years sort of age going for 20 and 20 last night. I think he turned it over once in that game, twice in that game. Um, 22 points, 20 rebounds, seven assists. Uh, that was phenomenal. I don't know if tonight's going to be as phenomenal. You've got three potential closeouts tonight. Boston's moving on. The Nuggets are moving on. Who knows what's going to happen? Clippers and Suns, but Kawhi's not playing, and that's somehow in a national emergency right now. So I guess maybe all three <laughs> series could end tonight, but I think we almost need a night off after last night in the association. <laughs> I wouldn't argue with you. 
lot of that's the whole point of this show is to argue i know but but with there i wouldn't argue with you because tonight's slate unless you were of the camp and i guess i'd say slow your wolf slow your roll there for the wolves wolves in seven chance break it out in minnesota no chance no extension tonight it's over that's it zero chance yeah we we joked about it before the show started right you could have three gentlemen sweeps potentially tonight and it wouldn't surprise you back to back to back on the triple header of nba playoff action as far as last night is concerned Continue to be just mesmerized by Jimmy Butler's ability to perform in the postseason yep. year over year over year. Don't think anybody had on the docket that kind of performance from him. No. And are the Bucks done? It's very dangerous territory because the critics across the board and the pundits on Twitter last night point to the fact that it looked like the way the Bucks were addressing Giannis Antetokounmpo's injury was... We're going to manage it. We're going to do load management in the playoffs here. We don't really need him right now. There's no reason to force him back into action. We can take care of Miami. It's going to be fine. Then you break glass in case of emergency last night. Bring him out there. He is a relatively quiet 26, albeit I, I think he wound up having a triple-double by the time it was all said and done, or at least came close to it. But still, just 26 points. They lose, and now you're really playing with fire. I'm not saying they can't win back home, but... This is no longer, uh, hey, we can just sleepwalk through this series. This is danger of getting bounced out of this thing before it's all said and done and setting up a very fascinating second-round path for the Miami Heat. Yeah, two ways to go with this one. He did have a triple-double last night, 26, 10, and 13 for Giannis in that one. And keep in mind, like even with him not being at 100%, they had the game freaking one. I mean, they gave up 41 fourth quarter points and I'm not sure, but I'm unofficially I think Jimmy Butler had all 41 of those fourth quarter <laughs> points for Miami. We'll get the uh, um Official Elias Sports sport. Bureau on that one to see if that's the first time that's ever happened. No, he didn't have all 41, but it sure as heck felt like it last night and it leads to two questions. It is irresponsible for us to sit here and say, "Oh, the Bucks are done and who knows what's happened." Like they're the superior overall team, but they're hurt, they're wounded. And the way that that went down last night, and again, they go back to Milwaukee, they should win that game. But the problem with losing that game in the way that you did is that now everything has to work out the rest of the way. You actually have sort of afforded Miami to do what Miami has done, and that is they can sleepwalk. They could lose by 50 coming up in game five. And now no one's going to care because you know what they're capable of. You've seen it twice in this series. Yes, I know they're up three games to one, but twice in this series where they have just flipped – a switch to another level and been like, wait, wait, wait a second. This isn't them winning a game. This is them showing that with Jimmy Butler being the best player on the floor in this series, that they're a viable team to sort of win. And that's kind of been this iteration of Miami, right? Is that it's the feast or famine that you're going to get. They're feasting more than anything right now. So even if Milwaukee goes back, it's the hangover of having this game in your back pocket and should be tied two to two with the, uh, other expectation that you're going to have to play really good basketball the rest of the way and you just don't know when the explosion is going to happen on the other side and it leads to the second conversation which we were having a lot of and we're going to talk about it by the way in the show today um the best in the business mike chapel at one and then tony east talking pacers at two and one of the things we're going to talk to tony about here jimmy is this concept of roster build for playoffs and I understand that Jimmy Butler is cut from a completely different cloth like the man has a competitive fire and a willingness to throw caution to the wind in the postseason and finds ways of doing things magically when it matters most but it just shows in some of these games to where when it's when you're healthy and you have that guy 
and that guy is healthy, it can be enough to win in the playoffs. And that's where the construction starts. You need to construct something different to get to the playoffs, but then you've got to have that guy. And I understand we talk big three and all these other things. Yes, you need talent to go all the way, but sometimes in a series, sometimes for an excitement standpoint, you need somebody. And while that somebody has been injured a lot, Giannis for Milwaukee, the awful news that De'Aaron Fox broke the tip of his finger and what that means to the great series between Sacramento and Golden State. Separate conversation for another time. But for at least today's show, it's can you find your Jimmy Butler? Can you find that player who can almost single-handedly win you a series? Because that's what Jimmy Butler is doing right now for Miami. There's two things, though, with the Pacers that we have to take into account, and it's an important caveat whenever you're talking about finding that guy. First off, you could argue, and a very tumultuous tenure post Derrick Rose in terms of what the Bulls were and what the Bulls are still trying to rejuvenate into, but it's been multiple stops for Jimmy Butler did not stay right. or was not you know kept on the team that he was drafted by. Minnesota, Philadelphia, then finally finds a permanent home in Miami. But it took him three years to become the 20-a-night scorer. Sure. Just for the start of his career. I'm not even talking about his time in Miami. I mean, when he got out of the league. And you look at where the Pacers roster is at right now, and you ask, well, who's that guy? Your hope is that Bennett Matherin at this point is going to be that guy. It's a high bar. I'm not even saying he needs to be Jimmy Butler. I just mean to be able to be a guy that is a bucket getter, then go get you 20 a night on a regular basis, and not just do it recklessly, but do it with a sense of... He knows what he's doing out there. He's playing chess like you know many of the greats do when they have the ball in their hands late. It takes time to grow and develop. But we also emphasize the fact that maybe it's not officially on the roster. Or maybe there's one or two pieces already there. How does this year's draft point the Pacers right. towards that path of finding that guy? And with as many resources as they have, as many bodies as they have on this roster, serviceable NBA bodies that they have in this roster, how can you leverage that depth to make the right move, and maybe it's not this off. This is a very important offseason, but I still think it's you're building the the best overall roster that you can, and then eventually you're going to probably have to make the the big choice, and that is do you take several pieces and try and turn them into one piece with a couple of guys? It's the it's the weird roster dynamic, right? We've talked so much. We thought that this postseason, at least a week and a half ago, was going to be defined by an incredible first-round series between the Knicks and the Cavaliers, which is a very interesting sort of case study in this discussion right here, right? Free agency getting Jalen Brunson. Um, There's another interesting draft what-if that you could ask yourself about with what Jalen Brunson is delivering for that thing, but it's also paired with other guys, guys that were either a a retread with Julius Randle finding a home in a niche if it's R.J. Barrett just having time to grow and become who he is, the Josh Hart acquisition. That is just great roster building and management with, by the way, probably one of the more underappreciated coaches in Tom Thibodeau. I mean, what he's able to do defensively is, is spectacular. And on the other side, a Cavs team, it's like, wow, we're sort of relegated to this purgatory of what are we, who are we going to be, what can we do? We've got some young pieces, but we don't think they are the guy. So they literally trade everything they can, almost, to get that guy, to get a dude. And at the very beginning of this series, at the end of Game 1, that dude almost came back and single-handedly won a game for him and came up a little bit short. But you're sort of seeing like, wow, good team in the regular season because they got a couple of pieces. Now they get into this thing, and it's just one roster that's built a little bit differently. You're never going to get it right. Right. But it's – you can get it right. I'm saying you're not – 
you're, you're not going to be guaranteed to get it right. And there isn't necessarily a right, perfect way. Is it all in for one or two bodies? Is it good roster management with maybe four or five serviceable ones? But who's going to be the dude? Because right now you're seeing all of these series, with the exception of maybe Golden State, who has the culture and the greatness that is the Hall of Fame roster that they have, and and a few others. But you have guys that can just go and get it done for you, whether it's LeBron at AD in LA, showing it last night against a depleted Memphis roster. And and that's just kind of the interesting pickle that I think the Pacers have themselves in in this offseason, and why we're so... Um, optimistic about this offseason, Jimmy, because for the first time in a long time, there isn't a, well, yeah, we don't have a ton of cap space. We don't have a ton of capital. You have all of it. And you also have pieces that you sort of believe in that are on the roster. So you're rich with all of the resources that you would want to put together. And that's why I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, Jimmy Butler is a 30th pick. So the Pacers version of a player like that, like a just a dog that goes out and defends, gets the ball, scores the ball, maybe on the roster, may not be on the roster. And how you identify where that comes from next, I think is going to be critical because watching these playoffs just continues to redefine to me what what you need out of a team. And I think the Pacers are incredibly entertaining. And I think that they are built about as well as they could be built in this current iteration of them. But that iteration didn't make the play-in. So what's the next step? And is that step not only going to take you to the playoffs, but give you one of these types of teams that's like, oh, wow, they can do damage. Oh, wow, they can make it really hard on a two-seed or a one-seed and really mix things up and be viable. We talked about that post-draft last year. It all comes down over these rebuilding years, or however you want to describe them, giving yourself a solid foundation to be able to win each offseason in this rebuild. It is imperative to be able to win each offseason because while you can still find some nice role players either via the trade market or you can go out and you can do it in free agency, if you don't have a solid core or a solid foundation to continue to build around in the draft, you're not going to go where you want to go. Even though there's been these interesting storylines behind some of these teams who in all honesty – probably aren't going to win the NBA title. Like, I get it. I know that we are a breath away from a near unfathomable Knicks Heat conference semifinals where one of those two teams is going to represent the East in the conference finals is is absolutely nuts to me. It's not something that I had yeah. at all in my board going in. But you look at just those teams in general, and yes, you know, the Heat are able to attract a star like Jimmy Butler, maybe in the way the Pacers wouldn't. The Pacers have to do it organically, which doesn't take them off the board. Because you look at most of these top teams around the league, a large majority of them, their core was built through the draft. We've emphasized that time and time again. And there should also be a little bit of hope in terms of maybe not faithfully restored in the play-in because Miami's really only in this situation because of two things. And this happens in the playoffs. We've seen it a number of times already just in the first round. Injuries and a little bit of luck. Yep. So maybe... I'm not going to say that I take aback where my feelings were on play and push this year because the Pacers are not no, Miami. They, they, they do not have. I don't even think Jimmy Butler with guy. Giannis injured. This playoff I, team I, is making this Pacers no. team is making any noise right now. I, I don't either, but that doesn't fully diminish nor should it the sense of optimism, the sense of hope right. that's present on this roster right now. It is a matter of execution in June's draft and finding either the missing pieces. If you think you have your bucket getters, if you think you have your game changers right now, great. 
then you're looking for not just complimentary pieces, but franchise-level complimentary pieces that can go help you make that playoff push next year. Is Dylan Brooks the dumbest (laughs) example of what not to say in this playoff postseason? I mean, and the weirdest thing about it is, look, we, we spent a lot of time last week after the Draymond Green suspension talking about who he is, reputation, all this stuff. He owns the reputation. He wants it. He wants all of the things that come with being who he is. And he responds from it. We talked about that yesterday when, when Brian No was in here, that unlike Dylan Brooks... Oh my gosh. Draymond does not compound it with multiple miscues I mean, in terms of when he gets back on the floor. It doesn't happen. Hadn't even been one game. No. Uh, they're making me the villain. Dude, Dylan, <laughs> you said you were... The, did you not know what you said? Like it was weird to watch that game last night, which was highly entertaining until the back-to-back reviews in the second quarter just completely killed what was a really fun, I thought, early basketball game, and actually probably gave Memphis a little bit of of life. It slowed that game yeah. down. It gave him a couple of free timeouts. I thought the Lakers were going to run away with it in the first half. Uh, the Austin Reeves experience, by the way, is really fun. If if you haven't invested <laughs> late night in watching this guy play, I mean, it doesn't go in all the time. Like there's. I think we may have almost reached like peak. We're almost at like uh, what was the Lynn kid? Remember um, Jeremy Lynn? Jeremy Lynn. We've almost reached like Jeremy Lynn hype <laughs> for Austin Reeves. I don't know how sustainable it is, but it's kind of fun to see the freedom that he's had to try and do just sort of wild, incredible things on a team that has LeBron James, which is sort of remarkable. But watching that game last night, it it sort of looked like you know Memphis wanted to punch the older brother in the mouth, and then when they did. They were like, oh, shoot, I'm not yet as big as him, and I don't really know if I want the long fight here. I'm capable of winning this fight, but I should have gone about fighting with my older brother a little bit differently. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was, I'm ready now. Oh, no, shoot, he's actually still 20 pounds heavier than me and knows all of my weak spots, and they just weren't prepared for the punchback. Now, can they still win this series? Absolutely, because the Lakers are one Mr. Glass injury away from Anthony Davis being out again. Well, he doesn't even have to be injured. Right. At this point, like, last night, just truly disappointing from Anthony Davis. And I understand that he wasn't necessarily called on every single time, but there's been one game this series where he has been the role that we talk about how roster construction goes as LeBron is becoming more of a facilitator, even more so than he's ever been, letting things play out within the offense, giving more freedom to those around him. He needs Anthony Davis to be the superstar guy. To yeah. be the guy that some people thought a couple years ago was going to be the best player in the league. Yeah. And he's shown that one game so far this series. Which is crazy. I mean, the best player on the floor last night in the fourth quarter was the 38-year-old man walking <laughs> around who's, I mean, continues. I think adding to your legacy, is it easy? he's an easy punching bag through the years because of how stinking good he was. And I think last night just shows like why LeBron has always been great because it's you can't teach 6'8 linebacker you know, strength, ability, willingness to to throw everything to the wind. And I mean, gosh, I mean, we are closer to a Lakers Warriors series. A lot of that depends on what does De'Aaron Fox give it a go with that broken tip of his finger on his shooting hand coming up in game five of that series. I I think he probably has to try to give it a go because that's a completely different look for that team against the Warriors who have even that series up at two games apiece. But yeah, I mean, Lakers Memphis last night was just 
I mean, I think it just ended the game. In case you missed it, the uh, the post game interviews are probably going on right now. Yep. But it was on. Yep. it was very entertaining uh, product last night for the NBA, who is close to a dream Western Conference semifinal showdown between the Lakers and Golden State. By the way, champagnes on ice. Yes, uh, Sacramento Golden State on Sunday had the highest viewership of a playoff game in twenty one years. Twenty one years. I mean, that's pre streaming and massive. Uh, split of market share. I mean, that right. is a massive, massive number on a Sunday afternoon for that Warriors-Sacramento series. And if the Lakers and Warriors meet up, and again, it's, there's 20% of the audience right now listening to it. See, conspiracy, the conspiracy's in. The NBA wants their best matchups. It's like, do they really? I mean, their future is Memphis and Sacramento. Like, you want your future on display. Maybe this year it's you get them in the first round, and, and then that's a little taste, a little appetizer, but you really sure. want your stars still out there. I don't believe in conspiracies, but, man, that's a pretty juicy one if we get Lakers-Warriors yeah. in round two. I don't believe in conspiracies either, but, yes, it, it, if, you're asking it if, a business, if you're asking if a business, which is what the NBA is, it's a sports league, but it's a business. If you're asking if a business wants their best products to do the most in terms of success, yeah. yes, they do. Any company would tell you that, but there's a fine line between oh, they're they're uh, you know they're manipulating their books with their best product right. versus hey, it just so happens that that's the way the cards fell. And yep. to your earlier point, Grizzlies can still very much win this series. I do not know if Sacramento can if Fox is done for the series if he's out. Right. I can only go so far with that before I'm willing to. They get two games at home, yeah. in a tied series, and but it's a lot to ask because fourth quarter De'Aaron Fox is at another level. I mean, they should have they should have lost going away to the Warriors in that Sunday game, and they just refuse to go away. And if they don't get any production, the problem is. I think De'Aaron Fox, based off of what you read about the injury, again, it's a broken finger. He's got to play with a splint on his shooting hand at the tip of his finger. I, I mean, I just cannot be for somebody. If it was ja, again, John ja Morant's playing with a bad hand. He doesn't, it looks like he's playing with more than a bad hand the way that he's been playing out there for the Grizzlies. But that's a guy who really his offense is derived from his ability to athletically create and get to the rim. De'Aaron Fox is a phenomenal shooter. I mean, if you're the Warriors, you start daring him to make shots right. with his, with a broken finger on his shooting hand. I just don't know how you replace that for them. If they, But if this was he broke it before game four and it was in Golden State and you're like, okay, let's see how it goes. Maybe give it a day. Give it him a couple of days to sort of get used to it. But this is a must-win game. you got to go home and win. I mean, you got to yeah. go home and get this Yeah, you mentioned maybe, You mentioned getting two games at home. It's a maybe get two games at home because if right. you drop it you have to win on Wednesday one. or tomorrow night, yeah. it, that's curtains. You're not, you're not going yeah. into Golden State winning with a non- factor deer and fox yeah i think he's a, as important to them as i mean if we listed for all 16 teams well, i guess 15 teams that are still alive in these nba playoffs and you had the one guy that's most valuable the mvp of every team that you wanted to, excuse me if you wanted to take away from the team where he would rank in that sort of power rating scale you know the heat are done without Jimmy Butler. I mean, that I don't know how that team would survive if Butler's not on that floor. It, we've seen Giannis, not himself, but they looked pretty good when he came back in whatever version, 70-80%, but they were able to at least you know, win game, win a game without yeah. him. Like, uh, De'Aaron Fox top three or four 
if you took the MVP of all 15 teams still remaining in the playoffs of guys that you couldn't afford to lose the most? I mean, I'm trying to think of who else I cram in there. Jokic for the Nuggets. I mean, they could probably find a way to win. Embiid for the Sixers has got to be way up there. But, I mean, De'Aaron Fox is probably top five, right, on that list of irreplaceable biggest biggest loss for a team. I mean, Memphis showed out without Ja. Yeah. He, he's their face, right? Ja, But he's not De'Aaron. their... Maybe not their most important piece, but in terms of like pieces you can't afford to lose, I would put De'Aaron Fox in the same conversation, and I think you would too, as Jason Tatum, for, for a whole series, not just yes. one game, yeah, for a whole series. About, yeah, for like, Gri- Grizzly could get by with one game without Ja for a number of different reasons. The Lakers showed up in that game, th- or game two, and thought game two or game three and talked to themselves eh, we're LA they don't have job we're gonna be fine and Memphis straight outworked them that yeah. entire game and they but that's a team they that feels it. like they can outwork somebody for a series too depends the matchup LA yes Golden State Denver Phoenix yeah I know you're right I don't know you're right uh how many series in tonight <laughs> well I've been joking about Wolves in seven but no it's not happening I think that all three end tonight Wow. Yeah. I think that gentlemen sweeps across the board. Nuggets and Suns in the conference semis. Then you get business taken care of there as well for Boston. If you're a Clippers fan, how should you be feeling right now? Just not even about tonight, just in general. That the curse is very much real. Because there's been mistakes, heartache, confusion across that franchise's entire history. And then you finally have this nucleus that's there with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard when they end up there four years ago. And they're going to have a bunch of what ifs and career threatening and season ending injuries that have plagued them over that stretch. I feel so bad for Paul George. No, I don't. That's Jimmy Cook. I'm Will Haskett. <laughs> this is the midday show on the fan. More to coming in. Mike Chappell at the top of the next hour. Tony East, top of hour number three. Let's talk about, we'll dive into the Colts stuff because at this point in time, we all know who they're going to pick, right? <laughs> coming up here on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. More boy bands, please. Welcome back to the midday show on The Fan. I'm Will Haskett. He's Jimmy Cook. We're in the drivehubler.com studios as always. The Colts draft in. I, I, I took my timer off the computer. We're down to two days, what, seven hours, some however many minutes. You don't have a widget installed on your phone we, yet? Um, I had it on the computer when I was in here last, <laughs> and I don't have the widget in here. It is, um, it's the endless conversation. At this point in time, everybody is right and everybody is wrong. I, I've even talked myself into this like crazy world scenario where – I'm prepared to just laugh when the Colts are at four, something happens with the quarterback carousel in front of them, and they walk up there to the podium, and Roger Goodell announces the pick, and it's Tyree Wilson or from <laughs> Texas Tech. Like Chris goes and gets himself another guy in the trench who was always number one on their board. Um, was it Deontay Mack was the name of the guy from draft day, no matter what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just, I, I'm just okay. I'm, I'm not okay with it. I'm just, I'm accepting of the fact that something is going to happen that's going to be crazy because I feel like we've arrived now, Jimmy, in a lull where after it was a real frenetic, like week or so there, where it was reports about how many offers the Cardinals are fielding. And then obviously you and I got to deal with the incredible 
wow, Houston really isn't going to take a quarterback and people are doubling down, tripling down, like all in on this concept that they're not going to take one to the point where now you're seeing more and more mock drafts and people sort of suggest that they're just going to be two defensive players taken before the Colts and they're going to get their pick of the non-Bryce Young quarterbacks coming up at four. It's just, we are now in this lull. It is the eye of the hurricane, if you will. And so the eastern edge of the hurricane has moved over us. And we went through all of the initial mock drafts and all of the smoke screens and all of the misinformation and terrible prognostications and fake wonderlick tests or whatever the hell the tests are that they're taking these days. And all of this just smoke and wind and we got closer and closer to the eye and it was like impossible to see through it. And now we're in this like weird calm of, okay, we survived all of that. We still know that there's a storm coming on the other side of this eye wall. And when it gets here, I just think something crazy is going to happen that we haven't even talked about. Well, yeah, here's the issue, right? The last couple of weeks, months, feels like years, have been projected thunderstorms that wind out to be just a pop-up shower. Yes. But you're aware that the real devastation is around the corner in this right. natural disaster scenario. That yeah, the category two came through when Carolina <laughs> traded up to number one, right? Like you yeah. had a little glancing yeah. blow. Yeah. Yeah. Apologies to any transplanted folks from the Gulf region who have lived actually sure. through hurricanes sure. who are living up here and, and I'm bringing up trauma. But, you know, we lived through the category one, two storm, like a glancing blow. It's like, okay, they didn't trade up to number one. Uh, our windows got damaged a little bit, but we realized like, you know what? It could have been a lot worse. You know, go ahead and let Carolina get up to that spot. Where now there are some people saying that it could not be, it could again be not Bryce Young. I mean, whatever, I don't even know at this point in time. And now it's like, oh, now we're bracing for the bigger one, which is staying put, and then doomsday happens in front of you. I, I don't know. It's we can continue talking about it. We'll talk with Mike Chapel about it coming up at one o'clock. Uh, we'll have a lot of people on. I, I was listening in the car this morning to the guys in the morning and Jake and KB and. They had Ross Tucker on, who I guess is going to join us here tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And there's a ton of great information. And I've realized as someone who I'm not plugged in, I don't I don't text with a member of the Colts brass. I'm not a talent evaluator. I'm not Mel Kuyper's long lost nephew. Like I'm just viewing it the way that everybody is sort of driving around in their cars right now or viewing it. And nobody is right. Nobody is wrong. Like everything that I hear is like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know what that makes? Oh, yeah. You know what? Um, Shane Steichen would much rather have a, a quarterback that can move a little bit more than TJ Stroud. Oh, that makes a lot. Of, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, you know, Will Levis didn't have anybody that played with him last year, so that's how we get to discount. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, no one's had any measurables like Anthony Richardson has. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, you know what? This defense is actually loaded with potential Hall of Famers defensively. Oh, yeah, we could. Yeah, we could use some of those guys. It's just nothing's right. Nothing's wrong. So there. The projections I've made might, my speech. The projections might Red not flag. be right. Red flag. <laughs> Red flag to all on YouTube. The projections might not be right of these analyses that are being made by whoever, by any draft pundit around there. I have accepted the fact, and I think that most Colts fans are probably in this same boat. I've accepted the fact that it's going to be Will Levis on Thursday. And part of it is the never-ending game of poker that's happening right now. And I'm reading way into the tea leaves with this. I'm mainly following the the, yes. the the betting odds, if anything, which have changed a little bit in Will Levis's second overall department. He's now plus money, but that's not what I'm really referring to. What I'm looking at is there have been connections to him and the Colts throughout this entire process. 
And now we're at a point where Chris Ballard is doing one of two things. He's stating a fact in that no one knows outside of their building. And that's true, right? No one has got in front of a podium with a big horseshoe on it and said, hey, this is who we're taking. That has not happened yet. But the other side of it is, I don't want to say that he's like gaslighting the fan base, but he does that very regularly. though. and, and, And on top of that, he's basically saying last week, well, you know, People had us tied to one guy. I don't think it's just one guy for us. It hasn't come from us. I don't know where they're getting that but he information. Paused. Do you, he paused. Right. Like it's not one guy, and then it's like, well, oh, but uh, it's not one guy. Now it's is like, that truth or is it lying season? And that's that's a great that point. Was the only time he ever mentioned that. It's a great point. I, look, it, we also talked about yesterday that ultimately go with your gut in these situations. I'm not saying if you're betting on the draft, but just where you think this pattern is going to go, and. With the draft two days away, all this talk of, oh, it's all smoke, this isn't really what's going to happen, you need to set yourself in confidence of what have you heard the most about to this point and how likely is it that it's true. I don't think C.J. Stroud's going to be there at four. It'd be great if he was, but I don't think he's going to be there. So there are only two quarterback options in theory, barring one of these crazy mock drafts where Bryce Young doesn't go number one overall, is it's Anthony Richardson or it's Will Levis. Yeah. And at that point, with the comparisons with those two prospects and all the rumors surrounding what the Colts like most... You take Tyree Wilson. Uh, you take Ty- <laughs> I, I, I think they're going to take Will Levis. That's not me saying someone's told me that. That's not me saying that that's what's going to happen. That's me saying that I've been fighting this yeah. the entire draft cycle. I think that's who they're going to wind up taking. Yeah, I, I think the big question, too, is if all the decision makers that are in that building... It's Chris Ballard who's in charge of putting together the roster. He is a new coach. His new head coach has a tremendous track record of molding any quarterback based off of their skill set into being successful. Sure. His most recent successful one happens to be a dual threat quarterback who is as dangerous with his legs as he was with his arm and evolved as a quarterback as rapidly as we have seen in this league from year one to year two running a program this is a question i actually want to hold off and have and i'm gonna ask mike chapel coming up so we don't have to ask answer this ourselves is is there a desired quarterback type a stereotype of quarterback right now in 2023 in the nfl or are you best suited just getting the most talented individual and working around them so it's like it's easy for us to say you know Patrick Mahomes ha- can use his legs to be successful well Patrick Mahomes has generational arm talent and he also has the ability to escape but he's not a running quarterback he just can prolong plays to allow his amazing arm talent to be on display so when you hear a lot of the flaws or people point out like CJ Stroud he got to throw from a clean pocket because he had 15 first round draft picks blocking for him and he had 6,000 first round draft pick wide receivers on the outside it was too easy it was like playing seven on seven high school football for him he's not going to be able to adjust to the NFL and it's like yeah but when you saw him in against Georgia actually have to use his legs to escape it was like he's pretty damn good like I mean all of a sudden you saw things break down for him against an elite level team it's like yep. oh well the tape doesn't lie it's we're just going to pick these guys apart so much. And I hear what you're saying. And the thing that I've actually always sort of supported and defended 
Chris Ballard about in talking about the Colts to people in this market is this is a, a market and a franchise and the pecking order of probably the most democratic of the professional sports organizations, but you still are kind of a small market team within it that you have to typically take most of the risk being high floor prospects. Like you need to build depth. You need to build strength. You don't really have the time to take a lot of flyers in general. And I understand that line of thinking. I'm, I'm okay with that conservative mindset to building. It's just such an interesting position because I think, to your point, like Will Levis offers some upside, but I think he gives you immediacy in that position and maybe the highest floor of the two that could be sitting there when you get to between him and Anthony Richardson. But is it finally time with a roster that is probably still going to have to get turned over in a lot of places because the guys that you're paying probably aren't a part of the long-term future plan in terms of your big money signings, especially some of your D linemen and everybody that are pushing 30 and kind of getting closer and closer to that expiration clock is do you just sort of take the flyer on the greatest physical prospect of that position that has ever been tested. I mean, that's the thing that's kind of crazy about Richardson. No one's run faster. No one's sort of shown some of the actual abilities. And in a Shane Steichen offense, is that the most enticing thing? Which leads back to the question of who is truly triggering this pick? Because that to me is a the most unanswerable question that will never be answered. Like Chris Ballard will say, it's me. It's like, well, you know what? Your quarterback got benched last year and it wasn't you and it wasn't your head coach that made that call. So I don't really know like who's truly making the call now you have a new head coach like how much is he involved in it does he have does he have a particular style of quarterback that he thinks is the future of this league how much does that have sway in him and i do believe that almost this entire process they've been operating under the assumption that the first two picks of this draft were going to be bryce young and cj stroud and if that's not the case and all haywire hell breaks out on thursday what's your contingency have you i'm sure they have a contingency yeah i mean but i don't think that they've necessarily thought as much of that, I know they thought it all through, but it, I don't think it was as likely as it was a couple of weeks ago. And now with that being there, how does it change the conversations about moving up, not moving up? I think it's it's crazy right now. I'm sorry for whatever that last six minutes was because I blacked out there for a second. <laughs> I, look, I to be clear, I don't want them to take Levis. And the main reason is that I keep hearing all this, not just from you, but just all around of, well, the Colts feel like that he's gives them the most immediate impact right away. And that's great. If his floor, just for the sake of argument, and I'll even be nicer than my Mac Jones comment the other day, if his floor is Kurt Cousins, are you happy about that here in Indianapolis? Yeah, absolutely you are. Because you know two of these quarterbacks are going to fail. I'm not saying... I want to look big picture here. I'm not talking about the the crop of quarterbacks anymore. I'm talking about the bigger picture of the rest of the AFC. I understand. If if it's Kirk Cousins in Indianapolis the next 10 years, hang a couple division title banners, that's great. Where are you going? The problem is we don't think that any of these four quarterbacks are going to be... And look, we found diamonds in the rough. I mean, Jalen Hurts. Sure. Patrick Mahomes, like all these things, like could they blossom into being a top six quarterback in the league? Yeah, sure. What the Colts need this position to be is better than the quarter, certainly better than the quarterback position has been over the last couple of years because it's going to be on a rookie friendly five year deal. 
does it does this quarterback grow in a way to where in year three or four of the contract you're able to surround him with the pieces necessary to be an AFC South contender, to be a a playoff winning type team, and maybe even if you strike gold, a Super Bowl contending team. Like that's what you need on a rookie sort of deal. If I got the production that you're getting right now, I'm not talking about Kirk Cousins with the commanders. I'm not talking about the first few years of them trying to figure out what it was. I'm talking about what we've seen in terms of his ability to throw and and manage games. And he's become a better quarterback over the last couple of years. But all of these guys move better than Kirk Cousins. So we're get, even if they can throw at that level, with their sort of modern athletic traits, it gives you a better quarterback option. So yes, if I'm looking at that in terms of how you would rank where quarterbacks fall, and Kirk's probably what, like a top eight, ten quarterback probably in the NFL. I'm actually really good friends with Kirk's best friend. He's my engineer on PJ Tour Radio. I didn't mean to bring you into a and so uh, like, no, but no, you have to give me I I every single time I travel I hear about how he's the greatest quarterback in the NFL. So I have to also temper those. Okay. So I'm the All guy right. typically so playing I'm, balancing it out right I'm typically now. Okay. playing devil's advocate sure. in your chair. So I'm normally the one that's being like, no, he's really not that good. Sure. But then it's like, well, it's not terrible. I don't know. Like the the failure is is this like a Mitch Trubisky is with the quarterback that you get? Is it a you know name any of the other guys that have sort of sure. flailed in that position over the last couple of years? Zach that, Wilson, yeah, Zach Wilson, got Josh Rosen, guy. Josh Rosen, more of a pocket passer. You know, Zach Wilson, I'm just probably more of like a Levis traded type yeah, of sure. of guy. Sure, yeah, those are your problems. That's certainly a problem. But I, I don't know. I think that I think that you have the ability to get it right with both of them. And I I just think that if they look at it both and say, we're not willing to wait, or we think that one guy has a less likely chance of flaming out, that they would take the less likely in their minds, even though both of them could completely flame out. And then no one's going to be mad at that. In four years, if Anthony Richardson's out of the league and Will Levis is out of the league, then what are you supposed to do at four? Like, I don't know. Like, trade down and get Hendon Hooker? Take, no, take uh, Tyree Wilson. He could be your... He could be your answer on the outside, sacking quarterbacks for years to come. I don't like looking at it at that path of if they're because at that point, it's hard for me to simulate what else could have been done for the Colts. I will say that, but it's also the other door of opportunity for Indianapolis right now that nobody wants to hear, that nobody wants to talk about, is they genuinely don't like any of these quarterbacks and they don't take one this year. And I think we're well past that at this point. I like think, I, yeah. I've, I've reserved too the fact much smoke, that, but yeah. but but that would be the counterpoint that would be thrown if they go Levis and the whole class stinks. Why didn't you see that? Like that 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 will be the argument from the track. They have, but Chris they Ballard. have to do it. Sure, like no, they have to take a quarterback. They don't have to. They don't. They don't have to. That's true. I mean, they could they, roll they, Gardner they Minshew t- out there and sell as a they, bunch of season they, tickets they, with they, Gardner they, Minshew. They could take a generational, in theory defensive impact player yeah, i agree i mean the better players on the board where they're picking are defensive players why i would be understanding not if i'm a colts fan but why i'd be understanding in the long game if ursay bowen and steichen said this is not the year we don't like this class of quarterbacks if on friday they're like we don't trust these quarterbacks they were not on our board be patient with us I know it's going to be met with a lot of anger. I'd have a There's ton probably of going to be a lot of empty seats next year. Massive you have, respect You have to play that. the long game. Like I don't want to sit here and say, you have to take a QB this year. Yeah, you have to if you're a fan that's tired of seeing mediocre quarterback play yeah. and retread after retread. I get that. 
But if the answer is, and this isn't going to be the answer, this scenario is not going to play out because I believe the pressure is too great internally yeah. and they want to actually take a swing. And I get that, but no one's holding a gun to Chris Bauer's head. But that would be that would Maybe. be transparency <laughs> and honesty, and yeah. I would I would actually appreciate it. I'm not saying I want that scenario to play out. I would like one of these quarterbacks to work out and we'd be done with this carousel of quarterbacks coming through here. Everybody would, yeah. But if we got to that press conference and they're like, look, Devin Witherspoon, we need a cornerback and he's going to be a lockdown corner for the next eight years and we... We, he fell to us at four. We thought he was the best player on this draft outside of Will Anderson who went two or whatever sure. it ends up being. Then I'd be like, okay. I mean, there's plenty of holes to fill on this roster as well. Um, so we'll see what ends up happening. And we're up against it here. Let's uh, let's get to a break here. Um, there's an interesting story in the world of sports I want to get to after this. Um, it has to do with refunds. Did you see this about refunds? I saw it on the bottom line. All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this up and I'll ask you a theoretical question about it coming up. It's the Midday Show here on The Fan, 93.5, The Fan. Final time this hour on the Midday Show with Jimmy Cook. I'm Will Haskett. Uh, this is a soccer story, but it's a broader story, Jimmy, so no one tune away. You don't have to go over to easy listening jazz. Tottenham Hotspur lost this past week to Newcastle United, which is... Premier League action for those on Premier League action. Six to one. It was an absolutely abysmal performance nope. from the Spurs. And the players have said that they will refund ticket costs for their fans because of how bad their performance was. So the players are putting their money where their mouths apparently weren't on the pitch over this past weekend, and they're going to pay back the fans, which is an interesting and fun, cool little gesture for a team that is really struggling for footing right now in the Premier League. I mean, they fired their manager, and they just fired the guy that replaced the manager because of that game, which is maybe it's a player problem. Just throwing it out there. Anyway, if you could get money back from any sporting event, that you've attended, is there one where you're like, yeah, I want my money back from that? Chiefs Colts 2014. Easy I for was me. There. Easy oh, for me. Yeah. So was I. Gotta remember, I'm a Chiefs fan for those that don't know. So you might be thinking, what's this guy talking about? It was a great win for the Colts. Yeah, it was. You got- it was also another. And again, it's made up for it now. Like, this is a weird question for me, right? Like, Kansas City's won two Super Bowls. All my childhood heartache of, of Peyton Manning breaking my heart and the Colts breaking my heart. Like, it. It's gone. Like it, it's is what it is. But the scar tissue is still there, and that was an expensive ticket to get. It was a playoff game. Yeah. Had to get it on the secondary market. I was in college at the time. Great game if you're a neutral. Great game if you're a Colts fan. Horrific game if you were a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs. All right, that's a good one because you had the big lead and big Charles lead. is already hurt, and your defense is losing players like flies. And Andrew Luck's all of a sudden flying through the air like Superman, and it felt like much like any franchise that is rooted for a loser for a long time, you know the other shoe is in free fall about to take you out. Man, it was like watching a train wreck in slow motion. I can't believe it's almost been 10 years. Yeah. Feels like kind of just yesterday. Eddie, you got one? You want a game you want your money back for? Um, None immediately stick out to mine uh, besides any Reds game. Any, uh, Pretty much all of them. Yeah. You know, as a Cubs fan, I've enjoyed every single time I've gone to Great America Ballpark. I've probably because they won. Yeah, oh yeah, and they just I always mash like six thousand homers. That place is an absolute home run fest stadium. I love that place. Go over there and crank some homers over the wall. You, um, you know, this is really interesting. Uh, I asked the question. I didn't really have my own answer. I took my son. I think it was last season to the. Grizzlies Pacers game because he was a huge John Morant fan and mm-hmm. that was when the day of he had like tweaked it back or something and he, he bailed out but if he's driving around listening Chris Denary will be yelling right now because Denary got me tickets for that game so I don't think I actually I didn't pay I just paid in friendship and loyalty <laughs> um, so I don't get my money back from that but it was 
the thing about it was is the opposite way around is that I didn't want to go to the game then, you know? So then it was like I was I was subjected to taking my son who was literally like wouldn't come out of his room. He was so upset when he found out the news when I picked him up from school that Ja wasn't going to play. And I was like, well, we have to go. Like a friend has given us tickets to go to this game. Like if I had paid on StubHub or whatever, I probably would have put him back up there and taken a bath on whatever the yeah. cost was or whatever. But it's like, no, like he's hooked us up with really nice seats. We're going to go. And so sure enough, like and we got there so early, which was the biggest kick in the teeth because we got to watch him just like stand there in street <laughs> clothes, you know, helping in the layup line or whatever. And it was just... So sad. And there were so many kids at that game wearing Morant jerseys and they all had the same look on their face, like just sitting in a chair, dejected. Um, it was brutal. Absolutely brutal. So yeah, it was, uh, that was a fun one. So I guess I can't get my money back from that one, but I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll think of a, a better one if sometime I've paid for a event. I mean, I've seen so many bad college basketball games through the years. Was that Joe that just walked in here? Yeah, Joe Koppel. I what thought it was. He, I, 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 drop off? I only saw peripheral, so Joe Koppel, one of our sales people, comes in with this note. Peyton Manning being benched when the Colts were 15-0. and 0. <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. And that, and that is still, to this day, talked about with longing and heartache from I, Colts fans that wanted a perfect man, season to still be I, intact. I don't have... Like, my memory of that week escapes me. I remember the game, obviously. I remember watching Curtis Painter go in there and <laughs> try and throw and um and that was the week before the snow game, right, in Buffalo where what a couple of guys played just to get their performance bonuses and then they pulled them off the field also and when they were in pursuit of that, isn't that right? I believe that, so. that sort of happened. I don't remember I don't have a memory of the week of leading up to it because my only memory is that yeah, this was inevitable. Like you knew that it was gonna happen. I know that it was debated but I guess at least in my mind, I was looking at it from the business standpoint of Bill Polian and that entire brain trust. Be like, of course they're going to keep these guys out of the game. Like, I, I never really thought they would play. You know what I'm saying? And then sure enough, they didn't. And that was, wow, what a wild scene that was for a, a all-time team to be um, that maliciously <laughs> treated in the midst of an undefeated season. That was a surreal yeah. sort of week as a Colts fan. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, again, we talk about a large portion of these refund stories that we've brought up here would be would be what-ifs if a couple different things yeah. went your way on one or the other. That one is not as much as the game went on, as much as a predetermined decision that was made. Hey, yeah, we're going to be resting, guys. We're not going to be taking any chances, and it doesn't yeah. matter to us. I, I have the like the opposite one though. I, me and a buddy almost paid like nine hundred for Game Seven of the 2016 World Series, and we're like, well, we don't want to go in case the Cubs lose in <laughs> Cleveland, and then they didn't, and that's like the reverse of it. Is I wish that I had a kick in the butt to be like, no, you need to go to this. Uh, speaking of kicks in the butt, we're gonna get one because we're gonna get schooled on all things Colts. Mike Chapel coming up next. One hour in the books here on the Midday Show with Jimmy Cook. I'm Will Haskett. We talked Colts, we talked NBA, Pacers, we talked when we would want to get a refund on a sporting event in our life. It's harder and harder when you're in this business, though. We see a lot of sporting events without paying for a ticket, and that is certainly a perk, one of the many perks. I don't think this uh, our first guest has paid for a ticket to a Colts game in maybe my lifetime. He joins us now. <laughs> Fox 59, CBS 4 Sports is Mike Chappell is with us. Chappie, thanks for the time. Um, how many people per day now pull you over in the store and ask you about the fourth overall pick on Thursday? 
Yeah, like I know, like Chris Ballard shares, you know, we, we talk every night just to double check to see where they are. Yeah, I, I don't know. And, and with all the, the misinformation and smoke that's out there, we talked to him last week, and I asked him, do you know how the top four are going to go? He said, no, I don't. I believe him. You know, I think everybody's pretty convinced that Bryce Young goes one. I'm still not convinced Houston doesn't take a quarterback. I, I need to see it. I'll need to see it. But, you know, we'll see how these guys fall because until, you know, the one thing in the past when the Colts have had this franchise-shaping decision, they've had the first pick, you know, with Peyton, even going back to Jeff George, but Peyton and Andrew Luck, when you're, when you're at one, you control everything. Well, when you're at four, you don't control much of anything. So it, that's what adds intrigue to it. And whenever you have quarterbacks involved, uh, you know, three, four, five, whatever, it always amps up the uncertainty because as we've seen, whatever the word is, desperation, urgency, when you don't have the guy, you've got to find the guy. And there's five guys here that people think might be the guy. Chap, you mentioned and reminded followers on Twitter last night post Aaron Rodgers' official trade to the Jets that you know it's critical for the Colts to find their guys. What you tweeted out can't keep falling further behind in the arms race. When you look at the potential lottery tickets of guys, you mentioned five potential quarterbacks that could be that guy. But like you mentioned, the Colts are really not in control of their own destiny here. They have to wait to let the board come to them. How dangerous is it to either A, take the wrong guy here, or B, set yourself further behind that arms race with false hope, whoever they take. Let's say it's Levis, let's take it Stroud, let's take it Richardson, either one. How more, more dangerous is that versus the argument of taking a swing this year because being inactive will set you further behind? I, I think at some point you simply have to take a swing, trust your – again, this is all based on on all the evaluations that they've done saying they believe – one of these guys is the guy and that guy, if he's there at four or three, if they move up, if you believe that you you just have to do it knowing that, you know, it's probably 40% teams are wrong. Even, even at the top of the draft. So at some, yeah, there's danger involved, but I think in action, it may be as bad as anything to be sitting there in a year or two years and say, boy, I, w- I wish we had done whatever. I-, I would rather, I think they're at the point to where they just have to trust their evaluations. And if one of their guys is there, you take him and, and then you do everything possible to give him a chance to succeed. Shane Steichen's presence can't be overstated. They believe that he can that he can work with a you know an unfinished product which all these guys are you know even Bryce Young they're all unfinished and have things they're working on all of them have things you can work the one thing you can't work on with Bryce Young is his size yeah. I mean you can, you can have him eat host of donuts and he comes in at 220 but but the other guys everybody else's flaws I think are workable you know, the experience with Anthony Richardson is you get him experience. I mean, everybody else, you, you can work on things. I just don't think doing nothing or getting a left tackle of future or a pass rusher that might be 
you know, the guy, none of that in my mind really, yes, it matters, but until you can get the quarterback solved, your your ceiling is so low, it's probably not even division. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it is. So, so you have you have to trust the process, trust your everything you do, and say here here we go, guys. This is the guy that determines whether we're here for another six to eight years, or whether Drew Mercer really hits a reset button in two or three years. Fox fifty nine CBS Ford's Mike Chapel is joining us, and the good segue there, Chappie. With you mentioned Shane Steichen, two part question. I'll try and make it as quick as possible. Number one, how involved is your sense that he is in helping to select the quarterback if that is indeed what they're going to do in this draft coming up? And then secondly, to that, since he's had success and it's been well documented with a number of different types of quarterbacks in this league, all four of these guys that we're sort of throwing around have various levels of success, whether mobility, arm strength, and the combination of them is there a particular type of quarterback that you feel like is the is the need or is the want of that head coach based off of his variety and then how much of a say does he have in who that might be i think he's got a ton of say i really do i i, I think you trust chris bauer and his personnel guys all these scouts and morocco brown to say okay th- th- this is how we rank them this is what we see and then you go to Steichen and say, okay, which ones do you believe you can really work with and, and kind of get the most out of? It would just make no sense for Chris Ballard to make this pick without having, without allowing Shane Steichen, his head coach, to, to have heavy input. I, I, I'm not saying Shane, Shane Steichen makes, makes the pick, but, boy, he's got to have, you know, a strong vote and a strong voice if he believes – strongly in one of these guys or if not what are you doing you know why would you give your new head coach a quarterback that says you know i don't know i'm not too sold on this guy he's not our evaluation says this that's crazy and i don't think that's remotely what they do so i think he's got a ton of say frank reich had a ton of influence until you know, things didn't work out with they didn't. <laughs> Carson Wentz and not so much Matt Ryan because they were all, you know, they, they were all sort of in on Matt Ryan. But you, you've got you've to give your head coach uh, all the chances in the world to succeed, and that starts with giving him a quarterback that he believes in. The Dean Mike Chapel of Fox 59 and CBS 4, nice enough to take some time with us here on The Fan. Chap, what's your lean on if – it is Stroud, Richardson, and Levis available by the time the Cardinals are on the clock. What's your lean on the Colts' willingness to try to trade up at this point in time? I guess they would they prefer to stay put because you're going to give up a couple of what Jim Mercer describes as gold nuggets in second or third round picks. Uh, but I've always contended if if you if you get a, and I, I think Arizona waits till. Draft night to trade. Yeah. That, that's when it'll, that's when it'll be the yeah. most valuable. But if you're sitting there at four and Arizona gets on the clock and your guy, you know the, the other guys are gone and your guy is left, you go get him. You just you just and you don't think about the price. You know you don't think about boy, I really don't want to give up two twos or a two and three. That's crazy. If you believe in that guy, you 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 go and get him and then. You deal with the fact that you're losing a couple of pretty valuable draft picks, and 
But if they if it comes there and they've got two guys that they say, you know, we can work with either guy, then you stay put because they do value draft picks and they've done great work in second and third round. Yeah, there have been there have been misses, but everybody has misses. But ideally, you stay put. But if doggone it, if the guy's there, you go get him. I was talking to Bill Polian about a story last week, and he likes Hendon Hooker. Now, I'm not saying. You know, he ranks him above all the other guys. But he likes him. And I said, boy, you can't take Hendon Hooker at four with 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 the knee and all that stuff. And this year would be pretty much a red shirt year. And he said he, he decided, he came to the conclusion a long time ago that if you like a guy, if you really like him, you take him. You know, you don't wait to, you know, you don't wait to maybe I can get him at 14 or 20 or whatever. If you like him, you go get him. But, you know, I don't think they would do that. But the point is that there's a guy that you really, really like, and the only way to ensure getting him is to move to three, you do it. I'm convinced, and I'll be proven wrong, I guess, that Arizona won't pick at three. I just think somebody comes up. The Raiders, Atlanta, gosh, Tennessee. That's a long way for Tennessee to go. But but and, and can you imagine somebody, you're sitting there hoping you get your guy. and Yeah. Somebody jumps up and gets him. That's where you don't want to be, boy, if we had only done this. And that's why I say if the guy's there and you got a chance to move up and get him, you go get him. You mentioned draft capital. The Colts have more of it for this draft than they had maybe a couple of months ago with the moves that they have made. And while it's hard to sort of peg who they might actually end up picking, whether it's at three or four, it almost feels like it's a foregone conclusion with three fifth-round picks, Chappie, that there's probably going to be a linebacker picked given Chris Ballard's history. And then really just kind of the conversations last week around the facility about you know the need maybe at that position to go and, and try and find some things. As they try and build some depth later on in this round, we know where some of the holes are where do you think they're going to try and build depth especially as they have that sort of glut of day two and day three picks i mean we can argue around two if you don't give it up on a trade up whether it's a receiver which i would prefer just because you got a young quarterback and it's a supposedly a, a a thinner receiver draft even though the, the the glaring need outside a quarterback is corner yeah is cornerback i mean that 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 cornerback room is really really thin as far as guys that have played at a high level, um, but I so I, I can see the the second and the third pick being corner wide out wide out corner, and then gosh you've got you've got to find some offensive linemen. You need you need a, a, a young tackle to develop behind your young tackle at left tackle, and you need a couple of interior guys. You, you're trying to find perhaps a starting right guard unless they've got a free agent targeted if they don't get him in the draft. So they've got holes, but but corner, uh, wide out, and offensive line just kind of jump off the table. They've done, I was going to say virtually nothing, but they've done nothing uh, on the offensive line thus far, which tells me, again, they think they can get him in the draft, a couple guys in the draft, or, again, that they've got a couple guys pegged in free agency that, that when they whenever they don't get in the draft, they say, okay, let's go get this guy who's played, you know, five years for three teams, and we think he can be a player. You know, the the Mark Lewinsky, Chris Reed type of guy, which you'd love to get, but you know, you just don't, those guys aren't always available. So, those are the three spots outside a quarterback that jump off, and you need a linebacker. I, 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 they're very very good 
they've been very good at finding linebackers. They have. Uh, and I, I guess I, I would think they've got a good idea on Shaq's availability or where he's at one way or the other. I'm, I'm guessing they're, they're positive. Shaq sort of gave us optimism last week, but still, you know, five months out from surgery, I would feel better if he, if he was further along. That's just me comparing it to where he was last year coming back. But they've got, you know, I think this is a very good roster in spots. But boy, they got some holes to fill. Mike Chappell with us at Fox 59 and CBS 4. Chap, you've covered this team since they arrived in 84. I know every offseason is unique and has its own challenges and storylines. But when you look at how you've covered this particular offseason and the lead up to this draft by comparison to all the others, what's maybe the, the different aspects of this year, if any, or, or the uniqueness of this draft compared to others that you've covered? Well, the uniqueness is that you've got to find a quarterback and and for the first time in several years, you're in position. Things have sort of lined up. Things lined up perfect to get Peyton Manning and things lined up perfect to get Andrew Luck. I mean, I, I always go back to 2011, the Colts were awful, and they get the first pick and they get Andrew Luck. The very next year, the Chiefs were awful, get the first pick and they get the, and they get a left tackle because there weren't any quarterbacks. So it, it's time. It's it's about being in the right place at the right time. And at four, they are. I mean, again, that you can enhance that to, to go to three. I can't see Houston trading with the Colts to go to two. But you're, you you need a quarterback. You've got the fourth pick, and there's a slew of quarterbacks to choose from. So, again, it, 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 it's about preparing for the future and giving the team and the fan base reason to be optimistic. And, and that's what Thursday's about. It's it's about for, for a couple of years until you know there's hope that this guy, whoever it is, is the guy. And if he is, gosh, you're set for six or eight, 10, 12, 13 years. Michael. So until, but until you get the guy, there's uncertainty, and uncertainty is a never, never a good thing in the NFL. Mike, a broader question. I mean, you spent so much time in those locker rooms and press conferences and the sort of unique setup that is this offseason. New head coach, but the same brain trust in terms of GM. What's the temperature of the organization? I mean, I know that's a really, really broad question to sort of ask, but you have an influx of a new sort of offensive coaching staff and a new head coach and all the vibes that come with this, but you got a lot of the same. It's obviously a pivotal draft and everything that's coming up, but in this sort of era of the Colts that we are in, this sort of post Andrew Luck era, I guess, of the Colts trying to figure it out. Like, what is the temperature right now in that building? Because it wasn't a, a cleaning of the house; it was a half cleaning. We took one wing and we sort of redid one wing of the house, and now we've got to get, you know, a master bedroom occupant for that wing of the house offensively with a quarterback. But it's it's a sort of a unique situation, and so you've seen so many different situations and turnovers of power and stuff in the years. What's the temperature right now, of, of your opinion, in the building? Well, it, it, it's it's to win. It, it is. I remember it was the last week or two weeks ago we talked to DeForest Buckner, and he said, "I hate the word rebuild." Well, I, I guess it just depends on where you what word you want to use. Re, it's not a total reboot. It's not. But but when you bring it, when you're turning to a young quarterback, you have to have patience. And and, and Jim Mercy, it, it's funny where Jim Mercy talks about the multiple Lombardis, which he's always driven by, which he should be, you know, good for him. Now, of course, it 
it sort of skews optimism when he talks about that. But at the same time, he, talk, he talks about, you know, you need patience when you bring in a young quarterback and even a, a, a head coach. It, it requires patience. And I guess the question is, what does patience mean? Does that mean one year? Does that mean, boy, in 2024, this team's going to be ready? Because every year that you're that you're building toward your your player, your, your young your young players are getting older. I mean, Jonathan Taylor will have a let's, let's say 2024 is when they're put they're really pointing towards. But then Jonathan Taylor's got another year on him. Michael Pittman and, and the offensive lineman Ryan Kelly. So it, it's it's totally understandable that the players say, you know, screw pointing for the future. Let's win now. Yeah. But when you have a young quarterback, and let's say whoever it is that, that he doesn't start the season, I, I don't know if he does or not, you've got Gardner Minshew, and I guess in your mind, let's say that the, the plan is that he starts until he until he's not performing well. What can he get you to? Six to win, seven to wins? I, I don't know. He's available for a reason. He's available because he, he's viewed as a decent backup but not a starter. So I think it's really crazy. You've got an urgency to compete, yet you know it's going to be a year or two process because you're retooling your quarterbacks. And no matter what else you do at other positions, until you get the quarterback situation stabilized and where you want it, you're not going to be as competitive as you need to be. Chab, I asked you about the arms race in the AFC a little bit earlier, diving specifically into the foregone conclusion finally revealing its compensation and the Jets going to get Aaron Rodgers. What did you think of that train finally reaching its station and what New York ultimately had to give up to land him? Yeah, I saw some people say that the the the, the or the it was too much to give it too much, but but it's never it's it's not it, it, it's just not too much when you get you know a quarterback. Now the question with Aaron Rodgers is how long does he play? Yeah, is, is this I I, I just. I don't think it would be one year, but is it two years? It's kind of like the Tom Brady thing, where if you're the Jets or if you're any franchise, I think just about anybody would would go to and get that guy, whether it's Brady or Rodgers or, or even Matthew Stafford. And the result is it wins you a Super Bowl, even if that guy's gone in like three years. And then you sort of – they'll be back to square one. The Jets will a quarterback. But but if they've if they've got two or three great seasons and they make deep pushes and maybe get a Super Bowl, then it's worth it. It's just worth it. You know, I don't I don't think the Rams regret whatever whatsoever mm. what how they went about getting a Stafford and getting a Super Bowl. Same with Brady. But whenever you do it that way, there's it, it's going there's going to be a downside when that guy's gone because you put so much into. That, that one window, whatever it is, two or three years. But w- whatever the Jets gave up, it's worth it because what is, two years ago, Rodgers was MVP, back-to-back MVP. So, yes, he's old and all that older, but he give, any great quarterback, they give you a chance every game. Go back to Manning and, and Luck, they gave you a chance. Every, I don't care if you're down 38-10 to 10 in the third quarter against the Chiefs in the playoffs, you got a chance. And that's what those guys give you. And until you get them, it's like Chris Ballard said, you know, until you until you have that guy, there's always pressure to go and get him. 
uh, two days, seven hours, and approximately 20 minutes. So the Colts are on the clock, Chappie. So uh, that's uh, you can stay up until then. We'll allow you to have a nap after that, okay? <laughs> I just want it over. I'm looking forward to Sunday being here. And uh, as I say, the, the hail be in the barn. And we can all breathe. That's, I think it's everybody has that same opinion. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Enjoy the Chapel. rest of your day. Thank you. That's uh, the great Mike Chapel, the great Mike Chapel. Mm-hmm. I should have told him. I mean, maybe he's still listening. I don't know. Um, I was an intern at this station. Actually, it was 1070 back in the day. I was an intern here in the summer of 2001, so 22 years ago. That's when I was an intern <laughs> here. Um, yeah. Yeah, laugh all you want, you young pups in here who probably weren't even born yet. Or I was six. Yeah, that's that's great. That's that he was awesome. five. That's awesome. One of my jobs in the summer internship was to go to Colts camp. So I would drive. That was back when I was in Terre Haute. And then even when they moved and they were starting the beginning of the season, they're on the west side. And I'll never forget, I went to, I think it was the 56th Street Complex. And like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm a 19 year old in college, you know, like you're there to get sound and hope that guys who are smarter than you ask good questions and you just get the sound like so you don't have to actually ask questions <laughs> to these massive guys because you don't know what's going on and i remember there were bleachers out on what's 56th street over the practice facility there and i remember i was out there just kind of hanging around and i knew some of the other interns like that was kind of the posse you hung out with it was like the guys your age that were interning at the tv stations and everything but i got there early and there was no one else there and i'm sitting there and mike chapel just came up and started talking to me just started talking football and cult stuff like had no idea like and just Wanted to talk football. A nice thing. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. He just treated me like I was another guy out there watching practice, like I've been covering a beat with the star like he had been for 20-some-odd-plus years. So I'll, I'll always remember that. He's great at what he does. And great insight there, Jimmy. I think to reflect on a little bit, it's it's so interesting, the dichotomy of it, is he talks about the gold nuggets of Jim Ursay, but you got to do what you do to get your guy. And I think that there's a little bit of a battle there. And I appreciate that battle. I don't necessarily know if the Colts should be moving up to any pick, even if they are stone set on Will Levis, whoever it might be. Because if you read the tea leaves and you think that there's at least one defensive player that's coming off the board before you at two or three, I think everything's kind of set up a lot better for you at four than we thought a month ago. But it's a very interesting dilemma that they have there is that if you truly have your belief in one particular guy, and this is the guy that's going to solve the most important position in the most important sport, then you do whatever it takes to go and get that guy while also at the same time being like, yeah, but we have a lot of holes to fill and giving up resources isn't going to help us fill the rest of the holes either. I think it's, I think it's a bigger dilemma two weeks ago than it is right now, but it's still a dilemma I think the Colts face no matter what happens at two and three in front of them. It is all dictated, though, by, and we'll, we won't know, we probably will never know because we've joked about it, but it's going to happen, right? Friday, yeah, that's the guy we wanted. Yeah, you know, the board fell exactly the way we thought it was going to. We can't believe the guy was there, right? I mean, that, that's every franchise, not just the Colts. Everybody says that. They pump up their draft picks. It's the nature of the beast. It all depends, though, on who they want. If Will Levis is on their board as a number one overall prospect, and that's who they want desperately. Vegas odds be damned. I don't think that someone's going to trade up for him. I think he's going to be there for them at four. If you're in the market for CJ Stroud, and that's at the top of their list, and you mentioned it earlier, maybe they didn't envision a scenario where he's available within the three to four range, but now all of a sudden he is. And all these war rooms they've gone through, it's like an attorney preparing for trial. You are going through literally every possible outcome, every single scenario that could happen so that you're not caught off yeah. guard or caught, you know, running with your tail between your legs because you've no idea what's happening now. They are ready for any of these scenarios. The only way I'm trading up or I could see them trading up 
in my mind is if it's because Shroud was who they wanted all along and they see a fair price to go get him at three. Yeah. I I think these teams value picks more than this time of year hypothetically does in mock drafts and everything, especially in a draft where the only need that teams truly have is quarterback. The only need that teams have that truly motivates them to move for a guy in this at this level of the draft, not later, not later first round picks or second round picks where you want to jump in front of somebody that maybe is a difference maker, but I'm saying at this height of the draft, no one is trading up to get Will Anderson, who rates as maybe the best player in this entire draft, and no one's actually going up to get him. Well, maybe it could happen, but... sure. It doesn't appear that that's going to be the case. No one's going up to get one of the two or three cornerbacks that's going to go in the top ten. No one's trading up for the big dude from Northwestern to protect the left tackle. It may still happen, but there just isn't a scuttlebutt about it because it's the one thing of actual need. Why? Because everybody values the capital that they have the rest of the way because you know that you can get all these other positions, but you need draft picks to get them. That's the, that's the biggest problem is the value of draft picks has increased exponentially in the last 10, 15 years because of salary cap complications and everything and, and people understanding how much more important it is to have a fourth round pick than it is to go and try and find a special teams player off the street as an unrestricted or a non-tendered, whatever it is, undrafted yeah, free agent. Yeah. And so because of that value, it really diminishes, I think, a lot of the scenarios. I think it's why we've had this sort of regression in a lot of the mock drafts, if you pay attention to any of these people. We've had this regression back to, oh, there's maybe a more likely standpoint that these guys just stay put and take the best player available because I don't know how many teams truly value the quarterbacks in this class enough to leverage their future against it. And that should work in the Colts' favor if it happens. Now, is there going to be a team that panics on draft night and overpays to go to three i think that that's entirely possible but i don't know if you're going to see two teams panic and go to two and three coming up on thursday which is something we didn't think about because two and a half weeks ago we're talking about the scenario of the colts have to move because they can't be left with the fourth quarterback in this draft and i think it's far more likely they get either the second or third quarterback drafted than the fourth like we were talking about weeks ago when we said it's never happened before we've never had a draft where quarterbacks go one two three and four and this isn't even a generational class coming out of college to warrant that conversation but it's amazing to me that we've gone from it could be history one through four quarterbacks to i don't think it's going to happen at all like almost a zero percent chance that the colts are on the clock at four and three quarterbacks have gone before them yeah the panic button though shifts a little bit if it happens two times in a row and what i mean by that is it's no longer, to me, a panic scenario if a team jumps everybody to switch with the Texans and go take a quarterback. That, to me, would be your panic scenario because you're having to trade maybe not as much as what was given up by Carolina to Chicago, but the asking price is going to be very, very steep, whoever yeah. is making that leap. If that leap happens and the boards of the Raiders or I don't necessarily want to throw Seattle in there because they appear to be fine right now with... Geno Smith and, and, and rolling in that regard. But if it's a team like the Raiders, if it's a team like, I don't know, the, the Lions, I'm just throwing hypotheticals here. Falcons. The cost becomes less, in my mind, to move up to three. There's an inherent cost, right, depending on how yes. far down the draft you are. But the cost becomes less to go to three if Stroud or whoever is off the board because somebody traded up no to doubt. two. 
So I don't think the scenario is fully off the table, but why we've gone into this tailspin of four quarterbacks can be taken, eh, maybe two are going to be taken, is because of all the smoke and or fire that's happened within the Houston Texans ranks the last two weeks, which is, well, they actually only really liked Bryce Young, and they're not necessarily sold on the rest of these quarterbacks. That could all still be a misnomer, but it's what is being talked about right now. Right, but and we we litigated this last week. What is the strategy for Houston to create the false reality that they're not going to take a quarterback? It does it pushes up the price or the value of their pick. Is it a reaction to the fact that they know Arizona is widely shopping the number 3 pick and they're like, "Well, if they're going to get something, then maybe we can get an even bigger haul." But I said this last week, they've got the Cleveland's first for the next couple of years. Or this year, or next year, I mean, they've got they're loaded with first round picks, and they need bodies. They need they need guys. Sure. And is it worth stockpiling more mid round first round picks or second round picks, like adding one or two, when at the second pick you can get a guy that you think is going to be a cornerstone, and you still have multiple first round picks? Like I just don't know why they would be motivated to turn. Like they almost have they're like a Pacers situation without the talent on the field. Like they almost they don't have too many draft picks, but they have enough draft picks where it's like the only real way I would use this capital is to move up, not necessarily to accumulate more wealth below. And so them creating this as a rumor doesn't I think do them any service in the trade market, in my opinion. So then it's not a rumor. It's maybe real that they are truly gonna take the best player available to them and it's not a quarterback. Yeah, I mean it it, it doesn't matter if they all the trade talk goes out the window, right? If they end up making a selection and actually taking a defensive player. But if they are doing it just for the sake of argument, if they are doing it to turn up interest and try to figure out exactly what the market looks like and if they can get anybody to jump to two, you mentioned it earlier, there is an inherent value with second, third, and fourth round picks. Yes. So we understand they have this stockpile of wealth all across the board in a number of different rounds via that trade with the Browns. But... The addition of those picks doesn't mean you have to take them. It suddenly means you have further assets to go get an expiring contract or go get a, a, a disgruntled veteran or disgruntled, you know, middle of the road player that you could take right. a flyer on that you're able to use those draft picks for. So there is a science to stockpiling those picks. Yes. You don't see it as often in the NFL, but it's not something out of the realm of possibility in my mind for Houston to do. No, I, I don't know where they are. I, I don't know. Because they're not. It doesn't. They're not contending next year. They're not contending for the next couple of years. But Nick Casario doesn't strike me as a GM that's just going to play the money ball game either. Like I think he wants to go and get guys that he knows can be culture-defining players and try and turn this thing around a little bit faster than some other GMs that may come in and be like, ooh, yeah, you know what? Like This is going to be a four- or five-year process, so let's get as many resources as possible. I think he's like, you know what? Instead of building a fleet of 20 electric vehicles, I'm going to go and find like maybe a couple of Lambos sure. and then like round out my garage with a couple of things here and there because I need difference makers in order to succeed. Um, and we'll see what happens. So we're only halfway home in the show, so we can just play out this scenario for the next half of the show here. <laughs> uh, we will switch and talk to NBA coming up. Tony East coming up at the top of the next hour. That's Jimmy. I'm Will. This is the Fan Midday Show on 93.5 and 107.5. Fan Midday Show, Jimmy Cook. I'm Will Haskett. Welcome back. I think we've talked Colts enough, at least in this hour. Um, for those who aren't aware with my occasional flirtations here in the midday show over the last couple of weeks, I predominantly broadcast golf on the PGA Tour. This past week, Jimmy and Eddie 
It was the team event in New Orleans. No, we're not going to spend the next segment talking about what happened to the Zurich Classic of New Orleans. Don't worry. Don't worry. Keep the radio on. But it's a team event. The guys have partners. They play two different formats the first couple of days. Same thing on the weekend. Yada, yada, yada. And it's just a different feel, different vibe, way laid back, super easy, fun broadcast for our crew on Sirius XM. It was, it was great. Like, it was a great time. And I feel like we're in the midst right now. And it's easy for me to say, as an aging sports fan who finally has enough of a life experience to be like, oh, get off my lawn. This is how we played sports back in the 90s, um, to say that it feels like this, but rapidly in this attention economy of trying to fight for eyeballs, that we're... Lots of sports are rapidly evolving to make things newer, fresher, faster, whatever it might be. And we're seeing a lot of new things sort of introduced to try and just change the traditional view of sports. I mean, the NBA hasn't, I think, officially announced it yet, but the in-season tournament, I think, is coming next season, if you read the tea leaves on that one, with... You know, got teams being pods and pools, and then different uniforms based off of yeah, based off of like how you win through the first half of the season. Then there's like a kind of a midway tournament, kind of when the All Star breakish time would be, and there'll be a champion of that, and it's bonus money for the players, which is so strange. You won't be an NBA champion; you'll just be like, it's no different than again. We still have from soccer, but you know, if you're an English Premier League team and you're an elite team, you're playing in four separate yeah. competitions through the course of the year. You're in Champions League, you're in your own Premier League. There's the FA Cup and the Carabao Cup in England. So, like, if you're a really good team, you could be having four matches in a one month window of time that have four different places or ramifications. You could play a team from the Premier League in the FA Cup, I guess the it's the, the we're playing the Derby, right? The Manchester teams yep. are both going to meet for the FA Cup final. So it's like it's like a competition while at the same time sort of going on and more and more sports are sort of adopting these new things to do. And I don't know. Like, I don't know where I I think change is inevitable. I think certain change is fun. We talked about it with auto racing last week about you know NASCAR going to races within races and competition cautions instead turning into these actual moments of guys are getting points based off of where they finish in the midway point of a thing. It's it's a fascinating sort of time I think in sports of how things are evolving and so much chatter surrounds the NFL. I don't know if there's any tweaks or anything coming soon, but. If you turn on professional football right now, you've got an entertainment product in the XFL. You have a developmental product in the USFL. People are trying to do new things in the hope that they invent the next iteration of sport. And I think we're going to get a lot of stuff wrong, but we may get some stuff right when it's all said and done. That is that is my <laughs> TED Talk for the day. Um, you can learn more tomorrow when I talk about the fledgling economic value of professional bowling. No, I just can't. I kidding, expect but. a turtleneck for that, yeah, thank uh, you. for that one, please. Uh, look, I am all here for innovation as long as it does not affect when everything hits the fan to, to clean that up and say when the postseason arrives, when playoffs are at stake, when all these defining moments are at play, as long as that type of innovation does not impact that, muddy that product to a point where you have uprising or you have just frustration of what the league has become, that's fine. You look at the NBA, I don't know. The in-season tournament is so... Contrived. And and tough for me to wrap my head around that I'm going to have to see it in action in order to get what they're going for. Same thing was true with the even as small as the play-in tournament, right? Like, I didn't know what that was going to be, and and it still don't if it's truly a viable option for your nine and I ten like teams. It. It, it was entertaining. 
It, it was fun. Some bad basketball at times, but I mean, that's in a way sometimes the NCAA tournament, but it, it was good. The Heat are a, an example of a team that survived that gauntlet. And again, yeah. luck falls their way. They might end up moving out of the first round and into the conference semis. So I suppose that there's an avenue there for those teams and it is in, caused more engagement there. In-season tournament, does it do the same? Again, it's one of those items where I'm going to have to see it in action. Yeah. Because you brought up, and our audience doesn't really care about it, but you brought up across the pond. Champions League, FA Cup are all historic, high-level, different competitions versus a league having a tournament within itself against those same teams. Right. Are people really going to care I mean, people will watch, but how right. much will people care about the supposed stakes of an in-season tournament? Right. It'd be like if could you involve like G League teams? Like a G League team gets an opportunity to play. You know, it's we don't have promotion and relegation in certain leagues. You know, it, it'd be fascinating if one of the professional football offshoots became successful enough to where like you'd actually get owners in agreement to where like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers get relegated. I wish we had you know, I mean, it'd be kind of cool. Be it would make hilarious. Well, it would also force ownership in a lot of sports to actually look up. I mean, I think baseball has the structure to be able to do it if it weren't for the fact that, you know, AAA and double A yeah. teams have player affiliation, but there are certainly baseball franchises that, you know, could use a little kick in the rear sometimes to be yep. like, hey, it's time to spend some money or else the Indianapolis Indians are coming up for you and they're going to take your spot in Major League <laughs> Baseball and then probably probably get relegated right back. To, but, you know, it'd be it'd be kind of curious to see. And, you know, I, I said all this without even talking about baseball. The advent of the pitch clock this year has been revolutionary. Beautiful. Baseball is so much more, I wouldn't say more enjoyable to watch, but it's definitely easier to watch. It's, wow, you know the game's going to be done with at a particular time. So you can flip around the channel, get to a fifth inning or sixth inning of a game, and be like, oh, I only have to invest another 30, 45 minutes (laughs) and see the outcome of my favorite team. Whereas before, if it was a a blowout, you're going to see a bunch of pitchers. They're still taking their time. I've loved that. I hate the shift rules, but that's a different conversation for a different time. But in terms of trying to adapt to keep your audience and do things that are, I wouldn't call it innovative, it was more a survival tactic that Major League Baseball had to do. I think the early returns aren't super successful. The question long-term is you want regular season games to just move, right? Yeah. It's, you know, how do you then apply that versus when you have all of the eyeballs on you in postseason? It's like the NBA right now dealing with that same, the product right now in the NBA is so good. It's, but these teams playing each other next November, it's not going to be the same game. It's going to look completely different on the court when they play one another. So how much of it helps the regular season product but doesn't hurt when we really all show up and are interested in watching the final product, yeah. if that makes sense? Yeah, because we have this rinse and repeat every year with the NBA. Ah, there's no defense ever played. Ah, there's no effort. Ah, it's so frustrating. Oh, I'm not watching that. And then the playoffs come on, and then you realize, A, it is a top-tier sports league in the world. It is the best basketball players in the world. And, oh, wow, they're suddenly giving effort on both ends of the floor. Sure, you have some gentleman sweeps, and you have some ugly series, but for the most part, you're getting high-level basketball on a nightly basis within these playoffs, something that... A, you can't always bank on in the regular season, and most of that is because B, the stakes aren't there. You insert the stakes 
All of a sudden, you get fans more interested in it. You get casual sports fans. Maybe they're looking to place a bet or two on it. That's what the hope is for the in-season tournament, right? Is it adds some level of stakes, intrigue, and freshness to this bunched up regular season and add you a certain level of value, both from a consumer perspective, but also not too gimmicky that it's off-putting to the rest of the fans you already have. Absolutely. yeah, And that's the tightrope you have to walk in general, whether it's innovation or whether it's survival with baseball versus the NBA. You cannot go so far outside the box that you destroy what you've already built. Right. And the problem is here, too, the capitalism of sports has made it such a business that what's truly better for the product is not better for the bottom line and almost every single yeah. sporting example that we could come up with. There are very few sports out there, at least none of the major ones, where what's actually better for the product, bigger rosters, less games in the regular season, et cetera, et cetera, is bad for the bottom line. And that's that, that's a conundrum you're never going to figure out because as long as guys are selling franchises and turning billion-dollar profits... Um, for being awful human beings and still making billions off of their products, it's nothing's going to change in that regard because all of the decisions are coming out of a room of people who are making money hand over foot in most of these situations. And that's that's where the fan, that's where we all sort of lose a little bit in all of this because there's just there's no way out of the woods at this point in time without everybody making some sort of consolation or concession i should say of oh yeah i'm willing to take a pay cut oh yeah i'm willing to yeah. i'm willing to lose my nest egg here oh yeah i'm willing to you know give back some of my guaranteed money or whatever it might be like that's just not going to happen i'm intrigued by what the in-season tournament and other aspects of that do for smaller market teams yeah and it's going to take about i would say at minimum probably 3 to 5 seasons before you really have a true temperature check for what it is. Yeah. Because it'll get laughed at when it first happens. Probably the same for the second year. But once you're in three to five year range of this thing and it's established itself, does it matter? Is it consumed by the fan base in a way that I'm not going to say maybe you're ha- actually I will say it because it's going to happen. Banners will be hung. Maybe the yeah. Lakers won't do it or the Celtics won't do it if they win the in-season tournament, but there'll be some recognition from it. The first one, like you were the first to win the whatever. The, it'll be sponsored. The Kia mid-season shootout or whatever they're going to call the it. Starry. There you go. The starry. Well done. Starry. Well done. Yeah. yeah. Right. You got your NBA sponsors ready to go. I appreciate that. Yeah. Starry, Kia. Nope. What else is there that's always there, it seems like? Uh, Mountain State Dew. Farm. Motorola. I feel like I see Motorola Hello, all Motorola. the time. There you go. So T-Mobile. Is the team going to be like the uh, like the Colts? Finished runner-up in in-season <laughs> tournament. Oh, I hope not. Hope it'll giant get that point. Finalist. That giant banner for that one. Maybe the Pacers will win the first one next year. I'm sure that's on uh, Tony East's docket of things to write about coming up. He's going to join us at the top of the next hour. Still one segment to go here in this hour. Uh, you know what? Let's go to the ice next. You ready? Let's do it. <laughs> There's, people are saying we don't talk about hockey, so let's let's show how ignorant we are about hockey. Oh, I can't wait but for that. Oh, the playoffs have been full great. Coming. Laurel and Hardy coming up next, talking hockey here on The Fan. Welcome back to The Fan Midday Show with Jimmy Cook. I'm Will Haskett. Uh, breaking news. We were talking about small budgets and imbalance of finances. The uh, Pittsburgh Pirates just locked up one of their young stars. Brian Reynolds just agreed to an eight-year, $106.75 million contract that includes a club option. 
Um, the reason why that's important is, you know, some local tie in there, but uh, largest contract team history. Yep. The Pirates were. Did you already see this on Twitter? No, one I don't of think so. four Major League Baseball teams to have never signed a player to a one hundred million dollar contract prior to this one. So that means there are three teams still remaining that have never signed a player to a one hundred million plus contract. So that is quick trivia. Eddie, if you've looked at it, you can't participate in this, but if neither one of you have seen the answer to this one, I will go ahead and allow you to try and tee off on this trivia question. There are three franchises in Major League Baseball that have not signed a player to a $100 million contract. We'll let Eddie go first. Okay, I have not seen it. so I A $100 million contract? Yep. Is that what it said? To a $100 million contract. Well, the athletics? That is one. Tampa Bay Rays? Incorrect. No? I think they locked in. Didn't they lock in? Oh, was it Glasnow? Glasnow, maybe. Or, or Rosarena. I feel like they've locked in one of the young guys originally, but it, it also could go all the way back to, I don't know, the Rocco Baldelli get a $100 million contract, whatever the old. Right, I'm just kidding about um, that one. No, that's not right. Cause they, Crime Dog? Did McGriff get Arizona Diamondbacks. No. That's what I thought, too, but then I figured they had to have had one or two in their history. Oh yeah, one I think is easy. Yeah. One I think is actually kind of stunning. Oh, easy, you say? Yeah, one is I think easy. Marlins? No, I mean that's, that would be a good guess. They paid Giancarlo uh, to trade. Do we give you the easy one or the hard one? Since we're running up against, are the them? Reds on there? No, no, they did it with Joey Votto. That's right. Yeah. See, just throwing out. Give it to us, Kansas no. City Royals. Oh, I was getting <clears> ready to say that one. The third team is the Chicago White Sox. Wow, that is stunning to me. Same. Not I mean, really I understand, like, about we're talking about over the course of, I mean, they were in sort of the doldrums there for a little bit, but, and they've got some young guys, they're going to eventually have to maybe make that decision for Dylan Cease or any of the young one guys that they have, but I'm guessing a lot of four-year, you know, $20 million sort of deals in free agency, and then just haven't grown enough homegrown talent to warrant a massive payday for somebody. I promised we'd talk hockey, we get Jimmy's thoughts on the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, Boston leads their series with the Panthers three games to one. They're the team everybody has their eye on this postseason. They need to do some amazing things. A huge game last night, Toronto forcing overtime against Tampa Bay. Uh, the Leafs lead that series three to one. They have a postseason curse they're trying to get over. Your thoughts, Jimmy, on the postseason thus far in the NHL? Playoff hockey's undefeated. <laughs> For a guy who's probably haven't even watched it. Playoff hockey's undefeated. <laughs> Tony East joins us next. We'll talk Pacers. It is the Fan Midday Show with Jimmy Cook. I'm Will Haskett. The frogs are still around as well. It's now residing <laughs> in my throat all day long. <laughs> Uh, by the way, you said the NHL playoffs always deliver. You were so right about that, by the way. Um, a majority of the series tied 2-2 in the first round. So, I mean, Game 7 hockey is great. Game 7 NBA would be good, too. I don't know if we're going to get many games to a Game 7 in the first round of the NBA playoffs. What we do want to do is have this conversation about will the Pacers make it to a Game 7 coming up next year in the first round of the NBA playoffs. They're taking all the steps to get there and to talk about that with us. And more is Tony East, who covers all things Pacers and also ruined my dreams of a coin being flipped. And I will never forgive him for that. So, uh, (laughs) Tony, thanks for uh, joining. And um, yeah, yeah, no coins. I'm still disappointed about that. 
I, I take responsibility for using the term coin flip and ruining everybody's day with that uh, with that exchange. But hey, you know, if you invent the three sided coin, I'm sure the NBA is happy to uh, to flip coins for these. Yeah, we'll we'll figure that out. It's the, the draws have been taken place. We'll get into that because I'm sure everybody was as fascinated about those permutations as we were last week. But I want to talk a little bit of big picture here, Tony. When you watch these NBA playoffs right now, you see what we're seeing. Whether it's you know, Jimmy Butler's amazing performance last night, some of these veteran teams that are pushing younger teams to the limit, construction of roster, yada, yada, yada. What stands out to you about success in these NBA playoffs that if you were running the Pacers, you would be looking for this offseason to try and complete this work that's being done? I hate to say the same things that the Pacers have been searching for for years and years, but these big wings on both ends are still just critically important. Whether it's your superstars like Jimmy Butler and even Giannis last night. And, you know, every series it seems like has one of these giant wings, except for Kings Warriors, ironically. It seems like a big wing is exceedingly influential in some way. But even, you know, I was texting with Eddie last night, Caleb Barton, right, is having an excellent, huge game for the Heat, right? Just guys of that size, if they can defend well or even just have a semi-efficient night, because of their size, they can defend a lot of positions, they can play a lot of roles on offense, if they can put the ball on the floor, you can trust them to do any role, like, they're just so valuable on a possession-to-possession basis, and it seems like a lot of teams' best lineups or hardest punches involve a player of that size or of that skill, and the Pacers don't really have a lot of those right now, like, they have some kind of raw or prospecty guys at that spot, but, you know, establishing that position, and Kevin Pritchard even said it at his end-of-season presser, right? They need those hybrids, those forwards, those wing types to push their team forward. That's what they need because they're they're still ruining the day in the postseason. Tony, we were discussing this a little bit off-air, Will and I, prior to you know coming on board today and just how the NBA playoffs has unfolded. And with his conversation regarding roster construction, when you look at what's there right now and you look at guys that you're willing to go out and get you a bucket or, or create that opportunity for a secondary piece to go out and get a bucket in crunch time when it really matters. Obviously, the top two candidates for that would be Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Matherin as he continues to grow. Do you share a similar sentiment in that regard that these are the two guys that are going to be or hopefully are going to be your big-time bucket getters, or is that still something that you feel needs to be produced in this year's draft for them? I think those two can do it, right? Uh, Halliburton already showed some clutch chops this season, right? The, the, the Miami game, even that Celtics game right after the Zerbiak comments, uh, the game winner against Chicago, and I'm forgetting the other one. You know, he showed that he has clutch capabilities and can run the show. The moment's not too big for him, right? But Matherin, we haven't seen that as much, right? The chances weren't as frequent for him as they were for Halliburton, but he does have the skill set in general of, you know, off the dribble chops, getting to the foul line, that isolation skills that make me think he could do it. I'd just be curious what it actually looks like. I will say, though, right, as confident as I would be in Halbert in that situation right now, the playoffs are different, right? The game is way slower. The style is different. The defensive attention you're getting is different. The, the game plan is so scouted down and unique on every possession that, sure, you can be an awesome clutch player in the regular season, but there's more to it in the playoffs. And so I almost would want to see it with any player on the Pacers roster. Right? Do you actually have what it takes – when that setting comes, like we've seen the Pacers be, you know, four or five seeds the last two times they've made the postseason and just fall totally flat on their face in the first round because it's a different game that their roster was either not prepared for or just not quite talented enough to get it done. So I would need to see what both of them look like in the postseason, but especially with Halbert. I'm confident they could do it. It's just how well could they do it? Can they do it every single game? Or do they require some more game planning and, and things like that? 
Tony East is with us, Locked On Pacers podcast, your source for daily Pacers information, plus the 65,000 places he writes about Pacers <laughs> in terms of content around the interwebs. You can find him there as well. Tony, this is a team that obviously needs to take big steps forward defensively. I think we saw what this offense can be, even with just how they're presently constructed, and we know there's going to be some other pieces coming. I think it's simple to say, oh, with a high draft pick and the number of wings, many of whom are defensive-minded, that you could probably go shopping and get all things in one sort of package when it comes to this draft. But I'm curious, too, through the exit interviews, through maybe even just some of the research around the other players as they progress to the NBA, how much growth defensively can this team, as it's presently constructed, no new acquisitions, how much better can they actually become defensively who they are as players? Yeah, I think a blueprint for a guy that you can see where it came from was like Oladipo, right? Ironically, with the Pacers in 2017, 18, like he was always athletic and pesky and could stand in front of guys. And people who watched him at IU knew he could defend, but in the NBA, it hadn't happened yet. And it just clicked for him, right? He came to the Pacers and the new coaching staff, right? The Nate McMillan Denver group and a bunch of other things for him, right? His workout regimen changed, but he became a great defender for the Pacers that year. He was an all defense level of guy that year. He made all NBA. He was a fantastic guy on the defensive end. So, Defensive growth, I think, comes a lot down to those. There's a lot of that goes into it, right, in terms of understanding the NBA better and understanding scheme better and all sorts of things. But there's so many little things when it comes to, you know, the game is so fast. These angles are so precise that, you know, all these little things like angles and where to stand and listening to the game plan and even sometimes, like, dropping your instincts. There's this great thing J.R. Smith talked about where it's like, he was defending Kobe once, and everybody said, he's going to pump fake, stay down, stay down. And the second J.R. Smith checked in, Kobe pump faked, and his instincts kicked in, and he jumped, and he you know, fouled him, and he got taken out of the game. Right? All these things that sound so easy are hard and take time in the NBA. And that I think a lot of these guys, because they're young and were in their first year with this team or in the league, will get better, especially at some of those little things. But it is, it is hard. A lot of it is you know, care and scheme and who you're guarding and who's around you. Like even Miles Turner had to do a lot more because of some of the struggles of others on the team this year. And it made him look a little less effective on that end, even though he truly probably wasn't. It was just playing a harder role. So I think everybody has a lot of work to do to get better on that end. And some of it comes down to just caring more. And some of it comes down to those little tiny things that matter so much. Tony, have you made yourself a wish list of what you want the Pacers to do with the first choice that they end up making? Or are you still giving yourself pause for when the, in this case, ping pong balls actually come to fruition <laughs> and reveal uh, what will happen for them in the draft order. Yeah, I think it, I think the position just matters so much, right? There are, thankfully for them, among the top, whatever, eight, nine, wherever you draw your line, there are a lot of players that would fit the, the mold that they like in theory, if they want to go the long-term route with an actual pick. But, you know, if they, if they get one, right, <laughs> you, don't, you don't consider all these players. They just pick the French guy, and that's it. Uh, you know, I, I hate to reduce his name to that one, but is amazing. But he's, you know, that's the pick, and then you, you kind of change everything around that, right? Or, you know, do you love Scoot Henderson, but then if so, how do, how do you fit him around what you already have? You have a lot of guards on your team, right? So I think it will depend on the lottery, but if they aren't top two, right, because there are so many forward options, I think the discussion is going to be less about – you know, who it is, who makes the most sense, and more about does the pick make the most sense? Does a big package for an established guy make the most sense? Because if they're wanting to go, like they talked about, from 35 to 45, 50, whatever wins, get back to the postseason, right? They haven't played a playoff game since the bubble. They haven't played a playoff game in Gamebridge since 2019 against the Celtics, right? Do they really want to go for it now and get somebody fantastic? And having a top pick and a really good draft is 
one of your best ammo pieces to do that. So depending on where they land, I think could drive those conversations as well. If you get the number one pick, it's hard to imagine trading it for anything. Even number two would have pretty high value. But if you're in that seven, eight, nine range, you know, who's available to you in the draft, who's available to you that's a well-established player. I think those are the discussions that they'll have to have that will be really tricky. Get all the information at T East NBA on Twitter if you want to follow all the stuff that Tony's already been writing and talking about. Uh, Tony, all of these draft picks with nowhere really to put them when it comes to the roster, how valuable are these late first-round draft picks for the Pacers? Yeah, I mean, you can even point to their most recent 31st pick, Andrew Nembard, and say potentially very, right? Like he was awesome for them this year. That that gives a lot of hope for these late picks. But also, you know, that that's not common, right? Like the 31st pick the year before him, Isaiah Todd with the Wizards has not panned out to be much. So it's kind of eye of the beholder, right? If you're a team that loves a guy that's still available come 26, 29, whatever, they're super valuable. If you're a team that values a big drop on after whatever, 24 players perhaps, they're not so valuable. But for the Pacers specifically, I think they're valuable in that they're just a solid asset at a, for a team that, is going to have a lot of movement this summer, right? Whether that's between players or picks or whatever, it's almost impossible for them not to be a team making either one ginormous trade or multiple trades just because they have too many picks and not enough roster spots and too much cap space and not a lot of ways to use it with the way their roster is currently constructed. So those picks here represent a good way to, you know, get involved in a bigger trade or consolidate them for something else. So even beyond what their value is to the Pacers, the fact that they will have value to other teams, especially in a pretty good draft, I think that's what's important to them this summer. Tony East with us of Locked on Pacers, and you can find his work as well on Sports Illustrated, among another of other options like Forbes, WTHR, the list goes on and on before you can find Tony's work. We talked a lot throughout the entirety of this season, Tony, about how there was so much parity from top to bottom within the NBA. There's been the injuries, and we'll talk to that. We'll talk about that as this conversation unfolds, I'm sure. But when you look at a seven seed up three one, an eight seed up three one, a five seed up three one, is that should we be surprised by any of that, given all the parity talk that we had accepted throughout the course of the season? Uh, yes and no, right? Like the Warriors are a six seed. They're tied at two, but I don't think anybody's surprised by the Warriors winning. Right. The Knicks are a five, four, right? But they're really good ever since the trade deadline. Like no one should be surprised by that, even though I picked the Cavs in five. So apparently I should be surprised by that. But I think the Grizzlies and Bucks situation, even considering their opponents, right? Like the Lakers have LeBron and AD, but the Grizzlies were awesome this year and they won a game without Morant and now they're down three, one and on the brink of, you know, completely falling apart in the first round and the Bucks especially, like they won a game without Giannis. They're down three, one that he can't miss from three, despite being a terrible shooting team this regular season. Like, the two teams they're playing against have, you know, the stars of the Lakers or the one of the best playoff coaches ever and Eric Spolstra, right? That matters. And I think kind of speaks to the parity of the league in that, you know, these teams can be good on any given night, right? There's a reason that the play in tournament was featuring, you know, 45 win, 46 win teams. Cause there's a lot of good teams this year, right? The Pacers had the seventh worst record with 35 wins. Like that's usually a 12th worst record kind of range. It was a pretty good year of parity in the NBA. I think you're seeing that play out in the first round, but a big part of it, like you said, is, the injuries to star players, Giannis, John Morant, you know, it, it seems like every series there's someone going down here in Fox we learn of yesterday. It's, it's everywhere, and it's a big bummer for the league that in a year with so much parity and it dominating the headlines, that's going to be a big part of this, too, is all these teams thinking, well, if we just weren't injured, you know, things could have gone a little differently for us. Tony, so many good articles and good content with uh, that you've been floating out there with the exit interviews that the players all had. 
Uh, give me one player or maybe one thing that came out of an interview where your your eyebrows just raised a little bit. I mean, there could be so much talk. We got to do this. I got to get better at this. 110%, yada, yada, yada. Everything is sort of moving forward. But but something from a player you were like, oh, wow, I even ha- hadn't thought about that, or that gives me reason for excitement moving forward. Yeah, that's what you just nailed the thing I like about X interviews. Like, there's going to be. 80% of the stuff said is some, you know, not cookie cutter, but just some like, you know, you expect to hear it. Like, yeah, every player's going to work on their game in the offseason. It's their job. But what specific things stand out to me? One of the things that really stood out to me is Benedict Matherin saying part of the reason he was disappointed in the season is he didn't feel like he gave the effort level he was hoping for every single game, right? Wow. Like, that is a unique trait for a rookie to say. Like, he, he just said, he says all the right things to make you believe that he's going to be just like a really good player for so long, right? He wants to be pressed to be the best two-way player in the league. He loves being coached hard. He loves those moments mid-game where, you know, fans hate it, but he comes out and Rick Carlisle says, hey, you didn't do this coverage right or you weren't in the right spot or you didn't run your lane in transition, right? That, and that stuff's really important for a player who wants to be as good as he does. And so I thought that was fascinating that he put his rookie season under the microscope that way and said, you know, hey, I didn't always – have that the way I hoped I would. And it's hard in an 82-game season, especially when it's your first one and you're learning a lot about the NBA and the rigors of day-to-day life. Like I asked every rookie about what they learned about the league because that's a significant part of it. But I thought that was very revealing from him and that you know he wants to be that guy who is playing all 82 games and giving all of his effort every single game. And, of course, every player will say that. But I think given his, his scope of his first season, the way he talked, the way that the team treated him, I think that he really needs it and it's going to bode well for him long term. Tony, Minnesota finds itself in a 3-1 hole. Milwaukee finds itself in a 3-1 hole. So do the Clippers. So do the Cavaliers. So do the Grizzlies. So do the Hawks. You have to pick one of those teams that you think have the best shot to turn the tide and win the series in seven. Who are you hitching your wagon to and why? I'm picking the Bucks. I mean, that seems easy because they're the one seed and they have an MVP candidate, and they've won a title in the last few years. But the Heat were the 27th best three-point shooting team in the regular season. Now they can't miss. They're over 50% after four games this series, even without Tyler Hero for much of it. That seems really unsustainable. The Bucks have won without Giannis already. They He played great last night. They were up big in the fourth quarter. Right? They have, the, the evidence is there that they are better, and they can beat the Heat at their best. But you know, obviously being down 3-1 is exceedingly significant. So I think just because they're the best team in the way the Heat have been winning, I mean, Jimmy Butler was incredible last night, but uh, has been a little bit unsustainable given what it looks like their team is. I think I'd pick the Bucks, but I got to give the Grizzlies a little bit of a shout here. Like, I thought they played really bad last night against the Lakers and still had a pretty good chance in that game. Like, Jow looked really out of it at times, and they were relying a lot on Desmond Bain to create as a result, and they were still up late, like one stop away from winning that game. I think they have what it takes to beat the Lakers, although it's hard to bet against LeBron up 3-1. So I I would pick the Bucs and Grizzlies, and maybe that's dumb because they're just the two highest seeds of the group you mentioned to me, but... Uh, those two seem like, given the, the way their series have gone and the way injuries have driven it, the most likely to do so. Tony, slight shift of gears here. Leah Boston introduced by the Fever, I guess formally, although we've sort of known that Leah Boston was going to be a member of this team for months now, uh, as soon as that lottery was sort of over with. Uh, there has to be optimism around the Fever, given how the last couple of years have gone and, and, and the accumulative assets finally coming to getting a player that was sort of a consensus number one overall type talent. Uh, what are the expectations of how large of a leap this team is supposed to take, the expectations of that leap, given what they've now been able to accumulate? Yeah, it's like all settled for them now, right? Like 14 months ago, they had 
a different head coach and a different GM and their home stadium was being renovated and they didn't have like nine of their 12 players were going to be on their roster here because the draft hadn't happened yet. It kind of feels all settled for them and it culminates with having a, an obvious number one pick global talent in Aaliyah Boston. She was a delight to meet yesterday at her introductory presser. She said morning to people who had asked her questions. Like I thought that was endearing and uh, rare for an athlete to be that sort of polite in that setting. And yeah, for the Fever, right, that they, they finally have the pieces in place to be a better team than they've been in past seasons. They have a culture in place. They they have a style that, that has kind of been missing, I think, in recent seasons. And on top of that, the way the W's kind of pivoted, there's a couple teams that have been better the last couple of years that either had a, a, a legend retire or a legend move teams like the Lynx and the Sky that they could easily pass in the standing. So I think they'll be out of the, the league's basement this season and, and right on the cusp of maybe a playoff berth for the first time in about five years. Tony East with us of Locked on Pacers and Sports Illustrated. Tony, going back to the NBA playoffs continuation that we'll see over the next couple of weeks and months, obviously you had your predictions before the postseason started of who you thought was going to be able to raise the Larry O'Brien trophy with all the injuries, with all the series deficits where they're at in both sides, the East and the West. Has there been any shakeup of who you think can capture the title now with the gift of most series about wrapped up and knowing what you know now with all the injuries? Well, I thought it would be a Bucks Clippers final, so I'm looking extremely stupid at this stage, even though injuries have certainly gotten in the way. But the team in the East I've most commonly picked that isn't the Bucks or have been high on is the Celtics, and they look good this postseason. Even when they look bad, they're able to compete with the Hawks, and they just Derek White's been so good for them. Former Pacer Brogdon's been really good for them, right? They look really threatening. So obviously, and beating Harden is going to be tougher for them than Atlanta is. But I think you know they made the finals last year. They've got the infrastructure in place. I think they look really solid right now, just especially given that they're one of the few teams that look like they might survive the first round with their health still intact. So I, I'd be high on the Celtics right now if I you know was, was picking teams. And in the West, it's just so tough, right? The Suns haven't looked as good as anybody thought. The Nuggets, they look fine, but even at their best, haven't looked as forceful as I maybe thought they might. You know, no team in the West has stood out to me, so I mean, I'm kind of inclined to just pick the team I've seen win the championship four times in the last seven years in Golden State, even though they've got a hard battle in front of them. But if they can escape this Kings team, who might be better than any team they beat in the Western Conference playoffs last year, right? Then I might might be inclined to pick them to get out of the West. But it's a bloodbath, man. Like that, you could tell me six teams make the finals, and I'd probably believe all of them. It's such a crazy year. Tony, last one for me. NBA Draft Lottery is on Tuesday, May the 16th. That will obviously determine a lot of what the Pacers' plans and path are moving forward. Um, yeah, this might be an irresponsible question because it's just such a large hypothetical, but when it comes to actual draft night, how many first-round selections do you think the Pacers make, and what do you Ooh. think they come out with in terms of not necessarily – an individual but personnel wise like what would be the what would be the ultimate best scenario of how many picks and what those positions look like i honestly think the answer might just be one i mean yeah they 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 have so many young guys already uh, that are a part of what they're good at and so i think they might just make their best pick and then you know try to avoid being in the lottery for as long as possible with the young core that they have and say you know what our timeline is Matherin and albert and with the rest of their picks or whatever assets they decide are a part of their asset base for the draft, they move those for established guys or pieces that fit or even long-term things they can use to make a big trade in the future. They are pretty uniquely positioned to make a star trade in the future, and so if they could add to that base, perhaps one pick and adding to that would be the way that they go. Tony, last thing on my end, I know you're not the biggest gambling guy, but the <laughs> lines have been released in terms of games that will take place on Wednesday 
Bucks favored by 11. That surprise you? Uh, you know, I said that the Heat have been on fire from deep, so I'm not surprised that they're favored by 11. The lines on that series have been weird because the Heat are like barely favored to win the series still, even though they're up 3-1. So uh, I guess I'm not super surprised because of that. But at the same time, I mean, the Heat have looked pretty dang good. And it's so crazy that that team was three minutes away from not even making the playoffs, losing to the Bulls in that play-in game. And now they're, you know, on the brink of eliminating the Bucks. But the, I don't think 11 surprises me. The Bucks look really good at their best in Miami despite actually losing that game. So I think they can win by 11, and they need to have an 11-point urgency. Uh, but, you know, he played well enough that I might be interested in taking a little less than 11 if I had to set that line. Tony East taking the time with us. You can find his work, Locked on Pacers, Sports Illustrated, Forbes, WTHR. Anything you're working on right now that you want to plug out there, Tony? Uh, I don't know if there's anything I want to plug right now. But uh, I thank you for the opportunity. Anyway. <laughs> Always appreciate it. You can find them all off season long on Locked on Pacers and Sports Illustrated. Thanks, Tony. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, the one game the Bucks won, by the way, they were laying nine. And I think I was on these airwaves and said, that's just too many points. They're like, there's no way they're going to, you know, and it was, got hammered. I mean, it was like I took the Heat plus nine <laughs> without Giannis. Remember that? And I was yes. like, oh, this is easy. And then the Heat have won outright the other games they've actually played. But the one time I even bothered to put a shilling on the Heat plus some points, they got they were down like 40 in the first half. Remember how bad that yes. game was? Yes. He is right about one thing, and this is if you're thinking about investing in any Miami futures, which you should not, by the way, because at some point, unless they continue what would be one of the most exciting and impressive team performances from beyond the arc in NBA history. Can't remember the exact stat, but basically on contested threes this series, they're shooting north of 50% from beyond the arc, and they were shooting like 30% or below in that same metric during the course of the entire regular season. So do I expect that to continue? Maybe Mm -hmm. it gets them through this series, but I agree with Tony. You still have Boston looking strong as ever. You still have Philadelphia right there, even if Miami beats the Bucs. And who knows? They might be able to knock out the Knicks. That's a very coin-flippy series if you look really at what that matchup could be in potentially a seven-game outlook. But, yeah, I'm not putting any futures on Miami to, to win it all this year. Yeah. Uh, no, not all the way. But, I mean, what was the line at the beginning of the series? Oh, I, mean, I bet it was insane. And to his point, it's still you could still get a little bit of decent value to bet the Heat to win this series even up 3-1. So... What's the line right now for the Bucks to win this series? Give me a second. Because that actually might be a little enticing. Speaking of bad shooting compared to good shooting, we talk so much about how entertaining that Lakers-Grizzlies game was last night. I think both teams shot sub-28%, 27% from three-point range. I mean, it wasn't the cleanest of looks. I mentioned the Austin Reeves experience a little bit earlier. He's fun because he looks so different, but he misses like half the times he's driving down the lane. It's It's been kind of crazy. All right, give me that number. Here, minus 150 to win the series outright. The Bucks are plus 125. Conversely, in other 3-1 series situations, Suns are minus 20,000. Clippers are plus 4,000. Knicks, Cavs. Knicks are minus 550 to close it out or to win the series outright. Cavaliers plus 400 odds. And one more for you. I won't go through the whole list. Lakers minus 1,000. Grizzly plus 650. So the Bucks. The Giannis factor, the fact they've won a title, wow. plus one twenty-five. That's insanity to me. It's like I would think I'm at least getting three to four, three to four to one or something. My money. This is where I just don't understand lines. I'm actually more intrigued by the Grizzlies. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, it, it all starts right when you go back to Memphis. You get that done. They've been right there in all of these games. There's an argument to be made that 
This goes back to seven rather quickly. And it's on your floor where you've been really good. So, I, yeah, there's a ton of value there if you want to back the Grizzlies. Plus 650 is the juice you're going to get. Right. I wouldn't be mad at you if you did it. Speaking of juice, we got stuff to give away, don't we? We do. true, Eddie? I'm going to wave the flags right here. This is green flag time. <laughs> and now, I, this is not written down anywhere. This is just me being a good fan of the fan. I'm going to give the phone number out and hope I get it right. It's 239 What's the phone number? Yeah, you're good. Perfect. 239 the number. We have got multiple packs of GMR Grand Prix tickets to give away. Two two-packs, to be exact. Two two-packs of tickets to give away to the GMR Grand Prix. This is your green flag to dial in, 239-1070. Here's the problem, though. I got trivia questions. So you're going to get to choose. We have two packs to give away. I've got two questions. We're going to let callers pick one or two as they get on the air. Coming up next segment, we're going to ask the trivia questions. You got to get them right. They're not hard, but they are IndyCar oriented. Uh, By the way, IndyCar, they're racing in Alabama coming up. You can hear that race Sunday here on the fan at noon Eastern time. IndyCar coverage, then they'll move into the month of May. And if you want to be there at the GMR Grand Prix, call us right now, 239-1070. Answer a trivia question. You could be a winner of one of two two packs. More on the fan midday show after this. Giveaway time here on the Fan Midday Show. Jimmy Cook and Will Haskett here with you in the drivehuber.com studios. Eddie Garrison guiding us throughout the afternoon. We have a couple callers in line for tickets if you'd like to try to bet on them missing Will's trivia question. 317-239-1070 is the number to call a chance for two tickets to the GMR Grand Prix on Saturday, May 13th at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We have two, two packs. Will, we have... Line one, line two, line three, line four, and line five. Where do you want to go? Let's go uh, line. Let's go line one. All righty, Danny, you're up. Danny, what's going what's on, buddy? Happening? How you guys? Do, how what's you doing right? today? All right. Um, good. How good is your IndyCar trivia knowledge? Give me a scale of like one to ten. Oh, like a like a three out of ten. Okay. All right. Here we go. I'm going to lead off since you're you're our first one. How many holes of the Brickyard Crossing Golf Course are inside? the track at IMS. Oh. I went Just easy. a random shot here. I'll go 12. Ooh. Little high, little high. Hey, hang in there just for a second. In case, in case we whiff on everybody on hold here, we're gonna stay there. Just stay on hold in case we come back. That was incorrect. That is not the correct answer, Jimmy. Let's go to uh, let's go line. Let's just go down the chronologically here. Let's give him in here. Let's go line two. All right, Kevin. Let's go with Kevin. <laughs> Kevin. How are you? Yeah. All right. I'm Fine. Not, How are you guys today? I'm good. I'm going to give you the chance of the same question we just asked for a two-back. How many holes of the Brickyard Crossing golf course are inside the actual track itself? I'm going to go seven. Still too high. Still too high. Wow. All right. Stay right there. Stay right there. You might might have a chance at redemption. Might have a chance at redemption. Line three. Who we got, Jimmy? We got Ryan up. Ryan, what's going on, Ryan? What's, what do you say? All right. I'm going to give you one final crack at this. We keep getting lower and lower. How many holes of the Brickyard Crossing Golf Course are inside Indianapolis Motor Speedway? Let's do five. Oh, gosh, guys, come on, people. I'm trying here. I'm trying so hard. You're so close. So close. Stay there. Stay there. Still might come back to do this. Um, I'm not going to give the correct answer. Someone's eventually going to get it right, but I've got another question. So let's go line four. All right, Josh. What's going on? Josh. Yes. You're not going to get the same question, man, because it's just getting too easy right now. Okay, ready? How many races has Will Power won at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway? I believe it's three. That is incorrect. Stay right there. Stay right there. We'll have to come back around and just ask who won the Indianapolis 500 last year. (laughs) That's what I was about to just hijack it and throw it out there. All right, so this is uh, line five, right? Yes. It's, it's, It's a different Danny. 
different Danny. Yes. La- line five, Danny. You can yes, choose sir. either one of the questions that has been answered <laughs> wrong to this point. Which one do you, would you like to choose? Either one. Yeah, I'll take the uh, first one, the golf question. All right, how many holes? Four. Four! Ding, ding, Let's ding, go. ding, 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 yeah. ding, 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 ding. Bonus points. Bonus points, Danny. Can you name which holes in the traditional routing of the golf course are actually inside the track? No. Okay. It's <laughs> seven, eight, nine, and ten. Seven, eight, nine, and ten are the holes of the golf course that are inside the track. Seven, a delightful par three, a little volcano, pop up a little green there. Eight is a difficult par four. It's got water down the left-hand side. Nine, pot bunkers all down the right-hand side there. And then ten, which has actually been converted to the 18th hole when the Indiana Women in Technology Tournament was out there, is a little par four. Drivable sometimes from the up tees. That is your golf announcer. God, 60 seconds in, of the day. I've been waiting. All day. I've been waiting all for day. a while for that one. Danny, right. hang tight for us. Danny, stay right there. From you. Okay. Uh, do we have new callers with the other guys still holding? We got anybody else in there? 317-239-1070 if you'd like to join the fray. Uh, currently, we have, which the I guess four. was a smart same four? strategy on your part. We still have Okay. Almost all hungry. of them missed. So we're going to go, let's go back to the top. This would be original Danny. Original Danny was line one? Yes. Okay. Danny number one. <laughs> Let's get double Danny's. All right. All right, you ready? How many races has Will Power won at Indianapolis Motor Speedway? Uh, so he's won the 500 once, right? So uh, I'm going to go three. Uh, that was the answer earlier. Sorry. Danny, you can go ahead and hang up. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. We're going to get this done. Thank you for participating. It was a good try. Good, solid effort today from Danny, and I appreciate you hanging in there. Who was on line two? We got Kevin on line two. Kevin, line two. Will Power wins at IMS? Two. Oh, no. First, Danny had it going. He's right. There's one 500. So the question is, how many times has he won the Grand Prix on the road course? He's run. He's won it several times. Who's my line three guy again? We have Ryan on line three. Ryan, redemption time. Ryan, alliteration, my man. Willpower wins at IMS. One 500 and three Grand Prix. One plus three would be. <laughs> Four, sorry. That is incorrect. I'm sorry, Ryan. <laughs> thanks for tra- thanks for trying. <laughs> Thank you so much for trying, Ryan. Okay, so that means we've come back full circle. That was savagery. That is, well done. Tip the cap. We got one more hanging on there. Who, who's our last guy hanging on? Josh. We also Josh. have fresh meat approaching as well. Oh, fresh meat. Josh, <laughs> last crack yeah. at it or else we got a new guy. Number of willpower wins at IMS. Six. Correct. Hey, Give him the go. bell. Let's go, Josh. One five hundred and five road course victories. A shout out to my man, the greatest communications guy in the history of IndyCar, Arnie. Thank you, Arnie, for the trivia questions. Um, wants me to remind everybody also that the one hundred days to Indy debuts this Thursday on uh, Wish TV, I believe. So yeah, you Wish can TV watch TV, that coming yep, up yep, yep. at uh, nine o'clock, I believe, is when that one is on coming up this week. So we got. 100 Days to Indy, and we've got the IndyCar race in Alabama. Before we get to the GMR Grand Prix, it wasn't that hard. I mean, give everybody a crack at it. I mean, and look, Danny number one, man. We came back around, and he answered the same answer as something before. It's I, okay. It's I all gotta, right. It happens. I got to give you a tip of the cap. And, Checkered flag, and, by the way. And, and Checkered flag on calling in on YouTube, guys. Checkered he, flag. He's got the assortment of flags. He's ready to roll. Yep. In all the shows that we've done together, you have... Managed Ran to, through a red light on a lack of spoiler warning for succession. I'm here to piss off the audience. And, yeah. and, and you made a caller, which I just, just chef's kiss for you, made a caller do math on an answer that was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, we are here to entertain, and for all of you who have been a part of our entertainment, do you know how many times, by the way, going back to our spoiler alert, which was, I think, like my first day working here, where I spoiled one of the main plot points of Succession eight days after the episode was on, which I continue defending myself. Do you know how many times this comes up in conversation now? Oh, and please tell I am, me. Oh, that makes me so happy. No, please, I mean, all not from time. people who are mad, but it's just, it's come up in just the world of understanding what the protocol is in this modern day and age of prestige TV and episodic versus full season sort of stuff. It's been a fascinating conversation to the point where it's an, again, this is a first world problem oh, yeah, of what I obviously. had that sort of day, but it's been really fun to talk to people about it. Like I'm not no remorse for it though. Right. Not, it's been fun to I talk wouldn't about, say a ton. Not- I have some remorse for the, for the, audacity of the quickness of it all in the way of not recognizing it. So sure. I do apologize to those people who sure. I ruined That's big of you. Um, that part of it. But <laughs> I was thinking about it last night because I was watching Sunday night's episode and I was a day late and I already knew a couple of things that were going to happen in it because I had been spoiled from social media or things that I'd sort of seen. And that particular day, I was eight days removed and a yep. full episode in between from being removed. So it's led to a lot of really fun conversations about you know what is appropriate. And I guess the most appropriate thing is to just never say anything. But or attach. I'm old enough to, to where there was water coolers. Like we, every ran yeah. to the water cooler the next day to talk about the thing that everybody was talking about, and that's just not kind of how we do business anymore. That's I mean, okay. you, you can, you still have those conversations, but as a ordinary consumer, you in theory know where those conversations are likely to have, or where those conversations are likely to happen. Whereas today, for instance, if we're on a sports show and you're a listener, you might be surprised if the path deviates on what happened in the most recent i I totally get it but totally again i'm I'm just giving you a hard time it's been a fantastic i've done it before i spoiled the the harry potter again no real no real remorse here no i understand i didn't hurt anybody's actual feelings correct correct except for the guy just made do math for a wrong answer (laughs) that that may have been a little bit below the belt but you know what he was part of the entertainment product as well we're here to entertain and there are people who are out there that are very entertained by everything that happened he was entertained right now notre dame football fans tyler buckner intends to transfer entering the transfer portal that news broke while we've been on the air over the last few minutes um uh, there might be an opening at colorado um, where Dion's running off the entire team into the transfer portal over there. But <laughs> the most experienced, I guess, quarterback on Notre Dame's roster from last year, there are sources now telling ESPN's Pete Tamble, uh, Thamble, excuse me, that um, Buckner intends to enter the NCAA transfer portal. So maybe a rolling quarterback competition coming up at Notre Dame. It's weird to have the football transfer portal as active now post spring games. You know, you would think that the activity would come at the, when the season is over with, and there's been a ton of movement yeah. from the uh, transfer portal. I was even reading on some of the IU boards the other day that like, I think Samson James is back in Bloomington and he had transferred out and was, went to Purdue and then sat out. Of, I mean, it's just, it's nuts. You don't even, there's so many of them now. It's hard to even keep track. Just show up to the first game and there'll be guys in the field playing. It makes the college conversation that much more engaging and enthralling to me, though. I like that this... You You like college free agency? I mean, I I like the idea of it that there's never a dull moment, right? I'm not saying I like the idea of it. There's serious ramifications and the system needs to be fine-tuned and and it's kind of a wild, wild west right now. Not as in college football, but across the board in college athletics. But yeah, I I, I enjoy the nuggets and news cycle. It's not quite at the level of the NFL by any means, but Yeah. yeah, it's... I love chaos. I think from a fan standpoint, it benefits everybody because... Any team that has the connections or has opportunity can fix things on the fly. I mean, that's what Indiana's trying to do right now. They're trying to plug a whole bunch of holes from 
a, a an old roster that has matriculated out and they can do it a lot faster than trying to build through freshmen and waiting for that sort of growth does it mean it's going to work out next year time will tell i mean they need some guys that can shoot the basketball they need some they need some depth in some other areas and it, it hasn't pl- it panned out to that way i'm obviously wearing my butler hat today for those watching on youtube uh, we're going to need name tags in Hinkle. I, I don't even know. I, if you honestly, I mean, it's a program that I've followed religiously for 25 years, broadcast their games for six years, did another six or seven years of calling their games on TV. And if you asked me right now to name six guys on that team, I think I would struggle yeah. to name it. And so is that good? Will the product be better next year for Thad's squad? Maybe. Maybe they will be better than they were this past year. Do I know anything about them before I see them play on the floor? Not particularly. So it's if it's a bottom line business, which it is at the end of the day, it's a bottom line, show me your wins, show me your postseason, then this is what it takes. And I, you're right, from a pure fan standpoint, it provides greater immediate opportunity. From a get off my lawn, I like the way of building – program sort of standpoint like those days are done for yeah can they work in certain places yes do they have to work probably at the mid-major and low-major level absolutely diamonds in the rough building old teams building experience and hoping that a lot of those guys don't get enticed to leave and go other places but at the biggest levels of it all football and basketball it's whatever it takes to put the best product on the field slash floor for this one particular season. We're not even worried about two seasons for now. We're worried about next season right now. And it changes everything. If it's still this Wild Wild West platform, it changes everything in terms of the way this news is consumed and how much you value it when the playoff expands. Because it's no longer just there's four teams the bite of the apple. Again, there's all the fears of, oh, it's just going to be more, you know, Power five, power six schools that are in there. It's not going to be mid-major life. Okay, that's fine. But it gives you more incentive to care about these moves and figure out where these players are going because there are more mouths at the table to try to capture a national championship now. Not this year, but in the coming years. Yeah, I agree. And the window is so open, too. I mean, I think we still have, what, today's the 25th, so there's two and a half weeks still Mm -hmm. where the portal is open. So, I mean, these guys are walking up to the end of school years and still able to transfer and then go take visits and figure out where they're going to go. And so this roster movement just continues and continues, and it's free-flowing. And it's so interesting because, like so many things that divide sports fans or divide us across all walks of life, it's it's not one – one thing is not bad. One thing is not inherently good. It's – I wish that you could have a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. I wish that there was – some way of restricting it a little bit but I also understand on the other hand that it's ridiculous to expect these guys these athletes these players to not have the same freedoms to go and choose a new place to go to school or a new place to play like anybody else could like you and I could have left college mid-semester if we wanted to would have ticked off our parents and the transcript may have you know traveled with us a little bit negatively somewhere but there was no reason why i couldn't have just walked out on butler the middle of my junior year and just gone and rolled at iu or hopped up the road to ball state or found places to go and and done things and no one would have judged me for making a decision for myself so to judge student athletes for wanting to make a move that might be better for them it's fine and we can't just assume that every single move has nefarious backstories well, it's the same conversation it's the same conversation with paying athletes right absolutely I've made that same argument for years a, a talented musician that plays the violin can go make money off of their in college yeah. but, a, but a pro athlete yeah right it's the whole Look, same thing i've wanted to be in broadcasting and journalism since i was 13 years old i got paid to be the sports editor of the paper at butler i got paid to do well i didn't get paid for any summer internships back then <laughs> um 
I got paid for, you know, thing like if I was the PA voice or something like that, I would get paid for work that was in the line of career that I was going to college to do. So there had to have been solutions and paths moving forward. Um, and is that I just heard the most recent ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries, um, or sorry, a podcast. And it was on the college basketball fallout, the bag men, the Adidas, Kansas, all these things sort of interconnected. And it kind of arrives at that same sort of solution. Like it was, it was seedy and underground before. Now it's somewhat above ground, but with a little bit more of a cleanliness to it. But it doesn't change really a lot of the current. It's just how we perceive it all to be happening is the same. Right. And it being above board, I think at least at least gives us a better sense of reality. And that was the reality I was moving forward is that these kids had to have a pathway to at least take advantage of their earning potential. And in many of the places, it's being done the right way. In some places, it's probably done the wrong way. But it was like that way before. Like, <laughs> at least give some of the teams yeah. that are playing by the rule a fighting chance to actually give these kids value. You we're know? St- we're, yeah, we're starting to see the impact of it. You can point to an obvious example of Miami last year and everything John Ruiz is able to do for... Isn't his company like going bankrupt or like they're Nasdaq's kicking them off the... Didn't I see that story? Like they aren't even getting a $1 stock vested interest or so they're going to lose their <laughs> something. It's crazy. But still, the impact was made. The results were there, right? The I mean, impact was made, but like, Miami. <laughs> will there eventually be a trickle down yeah, from course. it? I yeah. mean... yeah. I mean, good for Nigel Pack. I mean, got paid. Make sure those make sure those checks cash though this year. I'm just telling you. Uh, watch out. Uh, speaking of cashing checks, boys, I need to make some money tonight. Well, you might not want to listen to me. Can we do that next? Last night was rough. All right, but we can do that. All right, we're doing we're that back next. on the horse. Yeah, let's go. Final time on the fan. Will Haskett, Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison over there right now. All right, we need it. Not a lot of action tonight in terms of, I would say, interesting NBA games, so let's make them interesting right now. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a athlete. This is my way. This is how I win. Today's Plays of the Day, first in baseball, going to lay one and a half on the Toronto Blue Jays as they host the Chicago White Sox. Also going to lay one and a half on the run line for the Atlanta Braves as they host the Miami Marlins. One more bet for you, plus 105. Yankees bounce back today. Nestor Cortez on the mound as they are in Minnesota, though the offense is struggling. Now for the NBA bet you're waiting for. It's not Wolves in seven, but Anthony Edwards will not let them go down without a fight. Over 28 and a half for Ant-Man tonight. Jason Tatum goes for a 30-plus burger over 30 and a half tonight to close out the Hawks for the Celtics. One and four yesterday, one and four on the week. Why is it a burger? I don't know. I like burgers. 100 burger, 50 burger, 40 burger. I had a make your own burger bar last night at my wife's um, work festivities, and it was fantastic. I can't remember the name of the, uh, the place. They brought everything. You can really learn about a lot about a person when you give them an endless array of toppings and see what they put on their actual burger. I mean, it was a smorgasbord of randomness on my bun last night. Edward? I'm going to go double dip here in this Reds game tonight with against the Texas Rangers. They explode for six runs, which is the most runs they scored Why in do the they last explode? six. Six games. What'd you, don't even get me started. <laughs> the Rangers just forgot how to play Little League defense there for a second. Gifted the Reds three runs. Nonetheless, we're taking the Rangers minus one and a half, plus 122. Not only that, we're going to double down. We're taking the Reds under four. Wow. They have a Martin Perez on the mound, and he is a pretty stout uh, left-handed pitcher. They have struggled notoriously getting extra base hits. Uh, mark it down. My Cubs are in for a big swoon. This is the time when we lose hope. 
So anything you could do to take unders on performance from the top of the lineup and games, especially against the Padres coming into town this week, just go ahead and do that one. By the way, if you parlayed all three teams that could close out the series minus tonight just on the money, like, it's minus 200. I was disappointed. Like, what in the world? I almost was going to give it out as a throwback uh, parlay of the day. Juice, not enough for me This there. is where gambling just doesn't make any sense. Uh, go with their stuff, not with my stuff. That's always the advice. Uh, we'll do it again tomorrow. Um, by that point in time, the Colts will be taking a cornerback with the fourth pick because that's just kind of the way that this week is devolving. For Jimmy Cook and Eddie Garrison, I'm Will Haskett. John's next.